that there was no such place. I had a vague idea that Rio de Janeiro was a place, so I kind of kept that in the back of my mind in reserve. And if all these other places fail, I could probably wind up, join the Navy or something, and go to Rio, and I could escape for a few minutes from being black. And uh, a lot of black people thought that way in the back of their minds. They were looking for a place. That's the gist of what I'm saying. But the racists, this thing called white supremacy over a period of years, about 1957 while I was in Japan, I began to realize that you got to turn around and just grab it. It's no place to run. The rising cost of living is having an impact on millions of people around the world. Poor harvests, made worse by climate change, have pushed up the price of food. The pandemic has led to shortages of goods and workers. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine has disrupted supply chains and driven energy prices even higher. Over the next two weeks, our correspondents in different parts of the world will be meeting some of the people and businesses affected. We begin in Brazil. Our South America correspondent, Katie Watson, travelled to Sao Paulo State to find out why one of the world's biggest agricultural exporters is struggling to feed its own people. It's early morning and a yellow crop sprayer is making its way down a cornfield, its metal arms measuring 30 metres across. From where I'm standing, you can understand why Brazil is known as one of the world's breadbaskets. Brazil is an agricultural powerhouse, its farmers reaping the rewards of an insatiable China, and the demand is not letting up. Ana Paula Nunes is the fourth generation of her family to farm this land. She says much has changed since her great-grandfather started the business, fresh off the boat from Italy. He'd know when it would rain and could plant accordingly, she tells me. But now, with more extreme weather events, Anna no longer has that luxury of planning like her forefathers. Anna says she's learnt how to manage climate change, but the real difficulties have come in the past two years. When the pandemic started, we began to have problems with shortages of raw materials and that pushed up prices. And then with the war, those difficulties just increased, especially with fertilizers. We started worrying if we'd get enough for future crops. I've come into the warehouse where fertilizer is stored, and there are around 25, 30 huge, big white bags that are full of fertilizer. Each bag contains a thousand kilos of fertilizer. Now, when Anna bought these last year, it cost her around $650. But for this year's soy crop, which is planted in October, she'll need to fill this entire warehouse with these bags of fertilizer. And those prices that she paid last year, well, they've doubled since then. 85% of Brazil's fertilizers come from abroad, and Russia is an important partner. As long as the war continues, worries about getting enough fertilizer for future crops will remain. While that uncertainty translates into higher costs for farmers like Anna, it has a knock-on effect for everyone. For Josiani, who lives in a simple house on the outskirts of the nearby city of Araraquara, life is about much more than just adapting. For the mother of four, even buying the basics has become impossible. She relies on handouts and discounted food. At the sink, there's dirty crockery just dumped 
She doesn't have the money for detergent. A foul smell permeates the house, testament to the challenges of keeping the place clean. Hunger is ravaging Brazil. One in four people are now not getting enough food, and Josiane is one of them. She opens up the fridge, and there's a packet of beetroot at the bottom, some butter, milk, and fizzy drinks, but not much else. Then she shows me a pan. My boss was about to throw this out, she tells me, opening a lid to reveal congealed beans and what looks like fat. Pancetta, she says. She rescued the pot just in time. With the price of cooking oil soaring too, Josiani and her dad have come up with another survival skill, turning used oil into soap. They just need caustic soda, water and the oil. Add a bit of washing powder for fragrance and then stir it all together until it turns solid. That gives them soap bars to last them a few weeks. They say necessity is the mother of invention and Brazilians have a special word for it, the jetinho brasileiro, or the Brazilian way. When life is hard, jetinhos make the difference between starvation and survival. Katie Watson. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. The poor air quality in some Chicago neighborhoods, like Little Village, has been known for decades. But new data from a city-backed air quality sensor project provides a closer look at when and where air pollution is at its worst across Chicago. WBEZ teamed up with the Sun-Times and Muckrock to analyze air quality readings from over 100 sensors that were installed across the city last year. From Little Village's industrial corridor, WBEZ's Maria Ines Zamudio brings us the story. The 31st Street Corridor in the Little Village neighborhood divides the mostly Mexican immigrant community from one of Chicago's busiest industrial corridors. Irma Morales has lived in this neighborhood for almost three decades. She's showing me around today. There's a scrap metal recycling center and an asphalt plant at opposite ends of the block. A mile from there? to elementary schools, where 1,200 children are enrolled. This corridor is busy. There are a lot of trucks. We counted eight in five minutes. At that pace, there would be more than 750 in a typical workday. Morales blames a massive new Target warehouse. It's over a million square feet, and it brings hundreds of trucks per day to the neighborhood. The warehouse replaced a former Crawford power plant, a coal plant Morales campaigned to close for 12 years. We closed the plant, she says. But what's the point of working for years to close a coal plant to have it replaced by another polluter, the Target warehouse? She wonders why it's so difficult to advocate for clean air in her community. Morales said even building the warehouse polluted the neighborhood. Two years ago, a botched implosion of a 378-foot smokestack left the neighborhood blanketed in dust. Morales said she feels like the city is selling her community's air quality to the highest bidder. A 2019 city planning document touts the Little Village Industrial Corridor's proximity to I-55 as, quote, a strategic advantage to attract new companies and investment. 
After consulting with the city and community groups, Microsoft installed more than 100 air sensors throughout Chicago last summer. Most of them were placed on top of CTA bus shelters. The sensors measure air quality every five minutes, providing a more detailed view of pollution in many Chicago neighborhoods. Little Village was identified as an air pollution hotspot, particularly during the evening rush hour. Many sensors with the highest particulate matter 2.5 ratings are located near Chicago's industrial corridors, like this one in Little Village. Those readings also showed high PM concentrations in neighborhoods situated near traffic-clogged highways and interstates. That's according to an analysis of air quality readings by a team of reporters from the Sun-Times and the journalism nonprofit Muckrock. On a recent cold Thursday morning, Javier Roman with J.C. Deco is setting up a ladder to reach the air monitor on top of the bus shelter at Cottage Grove Avenue in 53rd Street. Roman is here to reset the air sensor because it stopped working. It's shaped like a leaf and it's white. So this is um, the device that reset. So every time this magnet goes behind it, what it does, it resets the... The solar power sensors collect readings on fine particulate matter, or PM 2.5, essentially tiny particles in the air that can lodge deep into the lungs, causing serious health problems, including heart and lung disease. Continuous exposure to PM 2.5 contributes to poor birth outcomes, developmental and mental health issues, cognitive decline, and even reduces life expectancy. In 2020, during the first year of the pandemic, life expectancy in Little Village fell by four years. That was the third highest decrease in any community in Chicago. Activists from this community fought to close the coal plant, then demanded to know how the city approved the smokestack implosion. Activists also held protests at City Hall and outside the home of Mayor Lori Lightfoot in an effort to stop the Target warehouse from opening. Kimberly Weiserman with the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization says politicians claim they listen to community. And yet our voices are ignored and City Hall's agenda is pushed forward. From bike lanes on the west side where community doesn't want them, to communities voting on a development of youth services and getting a warehouse instead. City officials said the goal is to use the real-time hyperlocal data from air sensors to make decisions. The city's health department acknowledges that traffic is a known source of air pollution and said it is providing health-based recommendations to other departments. Weiserman said Chicago mayors have a legacy of breaking promises they made on the campaign trail. She issued this call to Lightfoot and any others who want to run for mayor next year. The days of dysfunction and business as usual must end. Equity, transparency, and accountability can no longer simply be election marketing gimmicks left to the wayside. There is a need for reforms in the city of Chicago, starting with the Chicago Department of Public Health, and a process in which community voices can truly be, be built in and integrated into policy. Last month, Little Village residents gathered near the site of the implosion that left the neighborhood blanketed in dust. It was a two-year anniversary. The vigil honored residents harmed by poor air quality. And it started with this indigenous prayer. Moreno told the crowd it's important to transform anger and frustration into activism. 
Moreno said the community was energized after the closure of the power plant and opposed the warehouse with protests and petitions. También quiero reconocer la ira que muchos de nosotros todavía tenemos hoy. We need to acknowledge that anger is the fuel that keeps some of us in the struggle, she said. It's that anger that keeps them fighting for better air quality. Marina Samudio, WBEZ News. Black babies cost less. That nation's current baby formula shortage, if you're wondering how it all began, well, it began earlier this year when there was a, a recall by one of the biggest producers, Abbott Laboratories. Now, Abbott recalled infant formula products from its Sturgis, Michigan plant. This was back in February, and that was due to reports of serious bacterial infections in four infants. And they all were reportedly fed formula products made at that Sturgis plant. Now, Abbott continues to deny the formula is the cause of the bacterial infections in the most recent statement, citing, quote, there is no evidence to link our formulas to these infant illnesses, close quote. But here's what we do know. Nearly 40 percent of the formula cannot be found, and that's due to supply chain issues, of course, inflation, high demand, and also low supply. Hardest-hit households, we know, are low-income and rural populations. So, here's what we also know. At the start of May, 43% of the baby formula was out of stock at retailers, according to experts. Now, as the U.S. continues to deal with this baby formula shortage, the Biden administration, as we just heard earlier, is taking what they call emergency steps to get the formula back on the shelves to mothers and babies. Here's President Biden yesterday. Today, I'm invoking what they call the Defense Production Act to ensure that manufacturers have the necessary ingredients to make safe, healthy infant formula here at home. The Defense Production Act gives the government the ability to require suppliers to direct needed resources to infant formula manufacturers before any other customer who may have ordered that good. I'm also announcing Operation Fly Formula. That's to be able to speed up the import of infant formula and start getting more formula in stores as soon as possible. I've directed the Department of Defense and the Department of Health and Human Services to send aircraft planes overseas to pick up infant formula that meets U.S. health and safety standards so we can get it on the store shelves faster. Meanwhile, there are calls right here in Georgia from advocates to say now is the time to not only just go beyond talking, but let's have a real conversation about getting milk banks here in the state. Joining me now to talk more about all of this is Christy Corsi, a licensed lactation consultant and the executive director of Breastfeed Atlanta. Christy, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Happy to be here. You know, many folks have been saying, wow, how could this happen? And then I think a, a surprise for a lot of folks was that a large percentage, if not all, of the baby formula products that are made here in the U.S., three companies are responsible for? Yep, that's right. Um I don't know if I'm allowed to say their names, but Enfamil, Gerber, and Similac make most of our formula. Mm -hmm. And people who work in this industry have known for a long time that there's not very much on the shelves, period. There's usually enough there um, to last the surrounding community for a week, maybe a little bit more. Um, And we also saw this as emerging as a problem at the onset of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, Rose, but there were a few weeks when formula became very scarce. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's a problem that we're familiar with, although um, on this scale, we've never seen it before. This is May, we're in May. This plant had its problems first reported in February, although there are some reports that 
There could have been some problems the months before, but between February and May, and there were some reports, but did we? Did the U.S. just move too slow? This is through your opinion. Did the U.S. move too slow and now in trying to address this problem? Did they move too slow? I don't think so, because you always have to weigh the risk and benefit of something like an involuntary recall. There are consequences either way. So it, there's a lot that goes into deciding what is what's best for everyone. And I, I don't know that there was a way to avoid this, mm-hmm. honestly. Let's back up for our listeners who may not be familiar. Let's get some terms out the way. When we say milk bank, what are we talking about here? So a milk bank refers to exactly what it sounds like. So very similar to a blood bank. Um, People who are breastfeeding and have excess milk can donate it to a milk bank where it is tested and stored and then distributed to babies who need it. Most commonly, that milk goes to babies who are hospitalized, Mm -hmm. premature, and with other disorders and diseases. And there are regulations around these milk banks, correct? Yes, that's a little bit cloudy. So most milk banks in our country are not-for-profit organizations, and they are kind of certified and you could say regulated um, by their their parent organization, which is Human Milk Banking Association of North America. Um, but there are other models that are emerging that don't fall under that, um, which kind of serve a different purpose. Here in Georgia, are there, I know there are organizations that work, but are there milk banks? Presently, there is not one milk bank in the state of Georgia. We have milk depots, and there are several of them around the metro Atlanta area. Breastfeed Atlanta is happy and proud to host one. Mm -hmm. Um, And what milk depots do is they actually collect milk from certified approved donors and then they ship it to the milk banks, which are all out of state. What? Wait, a right. Minute. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have the milk depots where folks mm-hmm. are donating their their milk, but it goes out of state because we don't have a milk bank, which could help mothers and babies here. Yeah. So the most vulnerable babies are definitely taken care of. Um, All hospitals in Georgia have a source for donor human milk for their babies, Mm -hmm. whether it be from the milk bank in Raleigh, there's one in North Texas. Um, Our milk bank is in Birmingham, Alabama. All of those hospitals are served. It's just not local. It's it's long distance milk, if you will. It is it, is it a a issue that we don't have milk. Is it a legislation, a legislation that needs to be passed? How does a state get a milk bank or you just need to have one here? Take our listeners through this because we don't know. It's organized by professionals in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need any legislation or anything like that. You just need a group of dedicated individuals who are able to fundraise and organize and put it together. And that so far, for whatever reason, just has not happened in Georgia. Uh, I have an email from a listener, and it's actually one of my questions. Is this costly? That could be a problem to, like, how much would it take to get the process started, get one built? I I don't know. You know, I'm imagining you have to have certain types of machinery in order to house it. Yep. So you need um, specialized space to be able to do this. It's kind of like a laboratory. Um, You need sub-zero freezers to flash freeze the milk. And you, of course, need trained people to do all of this. 
And then um, the milk is tested, it is pooled and it is pasteurized mm-hmm. um, and then packaged and shipped out. And the, the equipment to do all of that is, is what most of the expense is involved in. I have another email from a listener who wants to know, so how much space are we talking here, you think? Him several thousand square feet, probably. Um, I would think five to 10,000 square feet. I'm estimating I've visited one milk bank before and it was a pretty, pretty mm-hmm. large operation, but you can of course start small and grow. And there are also other models um, for milk banking um, that would be less costly and, and probably a little bit easier and more accessible. Um, milk bank milk that's dispensed to hospitals right now because of the expense involved in in pasteurizing and testing it cost around five dollars per ounce Mm -hmm. so anyone who has a newborn baby if your baby's taking three ounces per feed that's fifteen dollars per feed so Mm -hmm. that adds up very quickly and and becomes inaccessible Hmm. so now here comes the economics and and all of this too yeah you dirt We think you're dirt, Paul. Who is we? The West. All the superpowers. Everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt. They think you're dumb. You're worthless. I'm afraid I don't understand what you're saying, sir. Oh, come on. Don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You could own this freaking hotel. Except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African. More than six million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded. Poland has welcomed a majority of them, providing work visas, social services, and cash to people who are escaping war with almost nothing. But not all those who've left Ukraine are Ukrainian. And some citizens of African countries have found that the doors of Europe are much less open to them. We wanted to help people of color. So we were accommodating Ghanaians, Cameroonians, Gambians, and, you know, people from everywhere. Tade Daniel Omotosho moved to Poland from Nigeria 15 years ago for school. He has dual citizenship, and he's raising three daughters in Warsaw. Last year, he became chairman of Poland's Nigerians in Diaspora organization, and he figured the job would mostly be community building. What we should be doing normally as an organization should be just bringing Nigerians together, organizing events, um, of course, business-related stuff, community development. Not this thing we're doing here. This thing we're doing here is a humanitarian relief effort for African students who were living in Ukraine when Russia attacked. In late February, Omoto show heard that black people trying to flee the war were getting stopped, harassed, and even detained at the border of Poland. So he made the five-hour drive east from Warsaw to help whoever he could find. Sometimes he'd see a black person at the border and just pull over the car to ask if they needed anything. He posted his phone number online, saying Africans seeking help should give him a call. That went viral, like viral. I mean, I, I got people sending me my own number. Like, if you need help, these are the numbers to call. <laughs> you know, so it was like, oh, my God. He'd post on Twitter, albeit this border crossing at this time. You can't imagine. It was so difficult. Um, so at some point, each time I get back home, I just drop my phone, give it to my wife, and then she helps with just replying every single of those messages. His organization procured a bus and found volunteers to help shuttle people to Warsaw. They put African students in donated Polish hotel rooms and used vouchers from Airbnb. They got donations from a GoFundMe campaign, and people sent money through PayPal. 
After a few weeks, the acute emergency started to transform into a more long-term challenge. And now, it's been months. There is no help from the government yet, I mean from the Polish government yet. Tell me what Ukrainians in Poland have access to that the students here do not have access to because they're from African countries. Two words. White privilege. <laughs> White privilege, that's just it, you know. So if they were Ukrainians, they would have access to free medical care. Um, they would have access to the social security number. Those who have children would have access to monthly sort of stipends. I could imagine somebody saying, well, Ukrainians have no country to go back to because there's a war. But if you're from Nigeria, you could go back to Nigeria. What would you say to that? Again, white privilege, because you do not have an idea what it takes to leave Nigeria and go study in Ukraine. Some of them, their parents borrowed money. Some of them, their parents just say, okay, this is all I've got on me. I'm going to make sure I'm going to send you to school. So it's not just so easy to say, go back to Nigeria. We asked the Polish government why they don't give Nigerians who fled Ukraine the same benefits as Ukrainians, and they didn't respond. And so the African students who fled to Poland are in limbo. Many of them are living in a rented two-story house surrounded by forests on the outskirts of Warsaw. This is a joyful home. Chizoba Joy Oche is officially the general secretary of the Nigerians in Diaspora Organization of Poland. Unofficially, she's the house mother here. They are happy people. Oh, are you sad? No, happy. So, 25 African students are staying at this house right now. Many more have passed through since the war started. We have somebody that have arrived like 72 hours ago. Most of the students here are in their late teens. They cram into bunk beds, five or more to a room. This is a makeshift, uh, a makeshift bed. It's <laughs> so you have squeezed beds into every corner you possibly yeah, can. We have to do that. Yeah, we have to do that. The teenagers crowd around a stove cooking noodles and beans. During the day, they play soccer in the yard or take courses online. We see how online classes do. They're really trying their best. Emmanuel is 17. We're only using the students' first names since their legal status is uncertain. I was studying, like, I wanted to be a medical doctor. I was still my first year, you know, had big plans, big dreams. You're, you're using the past tense. You say, I had big plans, had big dreams. Well, thanks for the notification. I, I still have the big dreams of the <laughs> How long have you been here in this house? Uh, a month. And you've made friends? Uh, family. Family? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Is this guy part of your family now? Yes. The two young men give each other a hug. What's your name? Yeah, I'm Daniel. I'm 17 years old. Are you also a medical student? Yes, I was studying medicine in Kiev before I left. That's true of most of the students here. When I was little, I was like, okay, I want to be a doctor. Ima is 19, and she spent four months learning Ukrainian in the city of Ivano-Frankivsk, preparing to start medical school. Then the war broke out before she could begin her graduate studies. It's not easy because if I have to um, continue my studies, I have to apply fresh as a new student, and I don't have all my documents, all my, my, my high school certificates. They're all in Ukraine, the original copies. So what does that mean for your plans for your future? Um, I actually want to go back to Ukraine. That's the only resource right now, to go back to Ukraine. The teenagers here at the house do the kinds of things families would do together. Braiding hair, watching videos online, anything to create some sense of normalcy during this scary, uncertain time. Once a month, they have a celebration for everybody in the house who had a birthday. Happy birthday! 
A student named Shakira shows us this video on her phone of last month's celebration. She had been pursuing a graduate degree in philology, the study of languages, when she fled Ukraine. Now she feels like she's watching her life slip by as weeks turn into months. We are tired of being here. Nothing is happening. Our life is we're, we're just like stuck in a cage. In a refugee crisis, you often find a cross-section of society. But at this shelter, nobody is average. There may be more people pursuing higher education crammed into this one house than in any other single-family dwelling in Warsaw. All the students here are people with the skills, smarts, and ambition to seek out a degree in a foreign country, in a foreign language. And so, while being adrift would be frustrating for anyone, it chafes even more for type A overachievers like Shakira. We didn't committed any crime. We want to pursue our education. We want to pursue our dreams. We want to get, you know, going, not post and then nothing is happening. Okay, what are you doing now? We've been here for like going two months. You're stuck in between. You know, it can go forward, it can go backward. The law should favor us also. We are not Ukrainians, yes, but we should understand that we are there when this war happened. The war has transformed millions of lives. And years from now, these young people may look back on their time at this house as a key moment when everything shifted. But it's impossible to know whether it will be a moment when their life was briefly on pause or one when their plans for the future were entirely derailed. Tomorrow, the scene at Poland's busiest border crossing, where the long lines are now going into Ukraine. When you get home, what will be the first thing you do? Uh, I am Budo Tsomate. I love you, my husband. Over the last two years, hundreds of black and Latino students at Chicago Public High Schools were forced to participate in military-run training programs at their schools. That's according to an investigation out today by the school district's inspector general. The probe was prompted by reporting by the news organization Chalkbeat, led by reporter Alex Rupenthal. Alex, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Melba. And Alex, what did the CPS inspector general actually find in this investigation? The inspector general found that uh, this was happening uh, at smaller schools on the south and west sides of the city, uh, where most students are, are black or Latino. Um, and what they found was these families and these students didn't have a choice in uh, you know, whether they wanted to sign up for the program. And it was very hard for them to get out of uh, this program once they were enrolled. And by comparison, this trend was really not happening at larger and higher income schools on the north side of the city uh, where more students are white. You know, it, it seems like when you're forcing students into a program, it's never really a good idea. But what were the specific concerns about automatic enrollment in JROTC? 
Yeah, so parents and, you know, others have worried about uh, this sort of steering students toward uh, military careers and maybe away from other educational or job opportunities uh, that they might seek out. You know, JROTC, which is this military-led class that teaches military science and leadership development, the students that take these classes are not required to serve in the military, but uh, the Army does have data showing that students at JROT schools are are uh, more than twice as likely to to enlist in the service after graduation. I'm really curious about what was driving this. Why were schools motivated to automatically enroll students in JROTC programs? You know, it sounds like in the end, it really just came down to the money. Uh, principals told the uh, inspector general it was cheaper for them to hire JROTC instructors rather than gym teachers because the federal government actually helps pay for the salaries of uh, JROTC instructors. Um, and that given that high schoolers have to take gym every day in Illinois, JROTC actually fulfills uh, that requirement. But there is some research actually showing that students who take uh, JROTC uh, aren't getting as much exercise as they would in gym class. And have you heard a response from Chicago Public Schools um, to the Inspector General's report? Yes. uh, CPS did not dispute any of the findings uh, in the report and said they agreed that no student should be automatically enrolled in JROTC. Uh, The district has also said it's making some changes to stop this practice. The biggest one probably is requiring parental consent for students to enroll in the program. Chicago Public School says it has the country's largest JROTC operation. I'm curious, Alex, what questions do you think this investigation raises about the program as a whole and its future? You know, given that uh, some students uh, we know now weren't actually choosing to enroll in this class, the investigation does really cast some doubt on, you know, how CPS has come to see itself as a a leader in this area. Uh, And we're already seeing some changes in the district um, at these schools where there was this forced enrollment. Uh, The biggest example is at uh, King College Prep uh, on the south side. The uh, local school council chair there told us that uh, parents were made aware they could take their students out of the program before the start of the year. Uh, And so this year, only 22% of freshmen are in the program. And last year, uh, 100%, the entire freshman class uh, was in the program. That's reporter Alex Rupenthal. You can read more about this story about JROTC in Chicago Public Schools by going to WBEZ.org. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches, not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize and oppress. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion, an act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways.
God has different ideas. Two's Jessica Dupnack joins us live now. And Jessica, was this supposed to be a joke? Because it's not funny. It, not at all. And again, it, it compares the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, to a primate. This picture was sent to us anonymously. And I got to tell you, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe that a teacher actually thought that this was okay to assign to her high school biology class. Take a look. Roper School, the oldest K-12 school for gifted children in the country, priding themselves on diversity and an alternative education, costing upwards of $30,000 a year. Part of that curriculum included this worksheet, passed out assigned in a high school biology class earlier this month in Birmingham. It's titled An Introduction to Primate and instructs students to pick from a gallery of photos labeled apes, monkeys, and lemurs. Among the photos, a picture of former President Barack Obama. The person who sent this to Fox 2 anonymously appalled at the racist messaging coming from a teacher. Tuesday, a spokesperson for Roper School sent us this statement with little context about the worksheet. The same day, the head of the school sent parents a letter explaining the worksheet was taken from a highly regarded university website and assigned in a high school classroom. The letter said in part, quote, on behalf of Roper School's leadership, I would like to acknowledge the disturbing racial offense contained in this worksheet and sincerely regret its use and the harm it has caused, end quote. They're offering counseling to students who were affected by this and say they'll continue training staff to educate on racial bias in the classroom. We, of course, had a lot of questions for the school the last couple of days. They admittedly have been a bit cryptic, but we did ask, what about any disciplinary action against this teacher? They didn't address whether she would be fired or any disciplinary action would be taken, but did say that the teacher admitted her mistake and understands it. So maybe more to come on this. We'll keep pressing uh, the Rover School there in Birmingham. Reporting live, Jessica Dupnack, Fox 2 News. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. I was confused. Why would he do that? And I just kind of was terrified. The Phoenix Police Department's Bias Crimes Unit is investigating after a Valley middle schooler was allegedly assaulted and called the N-word. Tonight, the I-team's Bianca Bono sits down with the victim's family as they share their painful story, hoping the suspect is ultimately charged with a hate crime. I think it just takes time, and it takes time to, you know, replay. And, and I didn't see the scene, but to get rid of that image for me, to stop replaying that in my mind of him just getting unprovokedly hit. The Ortega family is still trying to process what happened the night of April 9th. 
what they say happened to eighth grader Abraham. I think we were all just in shock that it happened. Abe was over at his friend's house for a birthday party with a group of other middle schoolers. They went for a walk, heading to a nearby lake, and his friend said they decided to ding-dong ditch a couple of houses along the way. Then they noticed a house with older teenagers inside. Abe staying back as some of his friends approached. We spoke to some of the kids who were there but are not sharing their identities because they're minors and fear being bullied. And we rang the doorbell and then everything kind of just happened. They say the older teens inside yelled and started chasing them, some by foot, others by car. The kids ran. And they were like, you really messed up. Ultimately, Abe said he decided he was going to try and defuse the situation. I went over there and the, the I'd say the ringleader or whatever, the guy who was leading the group, he like tried to make me flinch to intimidate me or something. But he did a little push at me. I said, don't push me. And then next thing I know, I'm on the ground. Abe apparently punched, fell to the ground, shielding his face from further injury. That's when his friends say the teen assaulting Abe, who they believe goes to Chaparral High School, called him the N-word. I was confused. Why would he do that? And I just kind of was terrified. We made attempts to talk to the families of the teens involved, including the suspects. The families declined to comment or didn't respond. These kids said all of the older teens took off, with the exception of one who walked the kids home. That's when the Ortegas got the call, not only about Abe's injuries, but about the racial slur. He said the N-word, and that scared me a lot. The seriousness of the alleged assault and the racist language used weighing heavily on Abe's six siblings who weren't there. It's okay to say that, and it's not... <laughs> his twin sister. As Abe's injuries became more apparent, his jaw sore, his eye cut and swollen shut, his tooth fractured, Phoenix police responding, quickly realizing that due to the statements made to Abe, it was a case for the Bias Crimes Unit, which investigates racially motivated crimes. Now the Ortega family is forced to wait. Life moves on for him, you know, and our family is here, you know, to deal with this and we you know, we want to see justice. How he can just, like, openly say, yeah, that N-word and just, like, call him that and do it, he did, is, like, very disturbing. This family still trying to understand how they heal and move forward, compelled to share this painful story to raise awareness. They want the 17-year-old student turned suspect charged as an adult, and they want him charged with a hate crime. If he's not held accountable, it will happen again. And Phoenix police have not made an arrest yet, but tell us this case is still open. The Scottsdale Unified School District wouldn't comment on this case specifically, but tell us when they learn of an off-campus incident, they cooperate with police, then determine if code of conduct has been violated. Bianca Bono, 12 News. Y'all niggas, and you gonna be niggas forever, just like us, niggas. Times a photo featuring students spelling out a racial slur surfaced on social media. At first, no one thought that it was real or was sure that it was real, but now the Martin County School District says that picture is authentic. CBS 12 News Treasure Coast reporter Denise Sawyer joins us live from the district headquarters. And Denise, that image and those students are now under investigation. 
Liz and Jim, we've been working a story all day, talking to parents and talking to administrators about this controversial photo. And just moments ago, the district has confirmed that that photo is authentic. And with this very real photo comes real consequences. The image is troubling. Six teenage boys are seen holding large letters that spell out the N-word. This racially charged photo, which was first reported by a parent of a student at Hidden Oaks Middle School in Palm City, quickly circulated on social media, drawing controversy and outrage from parents and kids. The first thing that popped into my head was shock. I couldn't believe that the students would decide to make that word and then take a picture of the word as well. They did the wrong thing and they need to be punished and the school needs to be talking about how wrong it is to be saying or spelling or even thinking about words like that and that there's that negative meaning. It still is so powerful and so hurtful to this day to African-Americans. It just needs to be talked about. They need to talk about it. The Martin County School District spokeswoman says the safety and security department is working to confirm the photo's authenticity. But she tells CBS 12 News it does appear the photo was taken on school property. We're reviewing surveillance footage and trying to just determine what that may show us um, and if there's anything else we need to look into based on what we find there. The district vows to take swift and appropriate disciplinary action against the students involved. The Martin County School District has zero tolerance for any type of of discriminatory, hurtful language, messages, slurs, anything of that nature. There's zero tolerance for it. So that's why we're taking the investigation so seriously, trying to gather all of the facts so that we can determine what course of action needs to happen next. For now, parents throughout the district are being advised to remind their children that their actions have consequences. I would just encourage all parents to have a very open conversation with your child. Now back out live here in Stewart, the district tells CBS 12 News that hope to wrap up this investigation within the next 48 hours. Reporting live in Stewart, Denise Sawyer, CBS 12 News. She's A parent sounds the alarm on bullying that she says is going unpunished. They have literally said they're going to kill her in school. The message she has for parents tonight in hopes of getting more students to share their stories. And a shootout on the side of an Indiana road leaves a driver and a good Samaritan dead. This evening, the new details authorities have released in the tragedy. And families having fertility challenges turn to him for help. Now several are getting settlements after it turned out Dr. Klein was the father. The next legal steps for dozens of other impacted families. Devlin threatened to come here and slit her throat in my home. As you just heard there, that mother saying another threat for children to come into her home and slit her daughter's throat. A local mom is sounding off about racial bullying and threats at Clark Pleasant Middle School. She says the district has yet to address the problems, even after her daughter attempted to kill herself. We do want to warn you, the details in the story are disturbing and graphic. Fox 59's Mike Sullivan spoke with her this evening and shares their story. 
one as much as lives matter so do words certain phrases um, saying i swear to god i will go to your house can cut like a knife and slit your effing throat for a year zanya weber has been hearing that i look like mr potato head and lord farquad the bullying reaching violent levels at clark pleasant middle school one girl threatening that she's going to um beat me even at home she isn't safe they will stop out here yelling white lives matter so then i end up with three police reports you see a lot of it's because she is black biracial and she is gay her mother deborah weaver adopted her from a relative naturally she went to the school for help the principal has refused to meet with me he has refused to return any phone calls as word got around the bullying got worse a lot of them's verbal. Um, the main thing is on an app called Discord app. At one point, we had one boy that write uh, the N word down his arm, pointing at her, telling her to kill herself. Zanyel began listening to the vile recommendations. She had a staple and went across her mouth, and it looked like someone had taken a knife and just went like that. She has been through three different mental health facilities. She wrapped a sheet around her neck and they caught her as she's making it tighter and tighter. Recently, her family went on social media only to find other parents facing similar racial bullying issues, even the children defending black students. We're trying to make sure all the kids' voices are being heard. In a statement, the Clark Pleasant School District says they continue to work with the family of those who have made the allegations. CPCSC does not tolerate bullying our teachers and administrators take allegations of bullying very seriously. I don't feel very safe going through the hallways. Always looking over her shoulder. In Whiteland, I'm Mike Sullivan, Fox 59 News. Since we started digging into this story, Deborah Weaver says the school now wants to meet with her. Weaver tells us she will be turning to an attorney instead. Listen. Just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's, That's, right. All. That's all. That's all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. With the guitars. It's hip hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you gotta do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. The city of Minneapolis has agreed to pay $1.5 million to Jaleel Stallings, a man police attacked, then falsely accused of resisting arrest. The Hennepin County Attorney's Office charged him with attempted murder for shooting at an unmarked police van during the 2020 riots. Prosecutors filed the case even though Stallings had not realized that police were in the van. At his trial last year, Stallings claimed self-defense and the jury acquitted him on all charges. Now that his court cases are resolved, he's speaking publicly about his ordeal. Five days after former police officer Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, the city of Minneapolis was still on edge. Daytime protests that were largely peaceful that week gave way to three nights of rioting that caused an estimated half billion dollars in damage. By May 30th, the worst was over. The National Guard was helping to patrol the streets. But at a news conference early that day, Public Safety Commissioner John Harrington addressed unconfirmed reports that white supremacist gangs were seeking 
seeking to reignite chaos. I cannot say that we have confirmed uh, observations uh, of local law enforcement uh, to say that we've seen cells of white supremacists in the area. Uh, We got reports of that over the last couple of days. Jaleel Stallings, who's black, was concerned when he heard that. Stallings, a 29-year-old U.S. Army veteran, has no criminal record and was not among the rioters. He did take part in peaceful street demonstrations, but fearing things could turn ugly, Stallings holstered his 9mm pistol. Stallings and a group of friends tried to get to 38th Street and Chicago Avenue, where despite a nighttime curfew, there was a round-the-clock vigil for Floyd. But Stallings said they encountered roadblocks and wound up gathering in a parking lot at Lake Street and 15th Avenue. They walked a few blocks, then turned around after a passerby said someone was shooting from a truck. Stallings says they were deciding whether to check on a friend's business or just call it a night when an unmarked white van rolled up. As soon as I saw the van come into view, shots were fired. At that point, I didn't have time to try to speculate on who was in the van, who was shooting at me, or whatnot like that. I had to react. Stallings was hit with a 40-millimeter marking round, a foam-tipped crowd-control projectile that's coated with green paint. The round hit Stallings' chest at 90 miles an hour. I thought I had been shot with a real bullet and was bleeding out. Thinking it was civilians, Stallings drew his handgun and fired three shots toward the van. The vehicle stopped and they hopped out and yelled, uh, shots fired, shots fired. That's when it clicked for me that it was police, so I tried to surrender. On body camera and surveillance video, Stallings is seen tossing his gun away, then lying motionless on the ground with his hands above his head. Sergeant Andrew Battelle and Officer Justin Stetson then run up to Stallings and kick and punch him for about a half a minute before Battelle orders a stop to it. Stallings suffered facial injuries, including a broken eye socket. Even though he'd complied with officers' commands, police said Stallings resisted arrest. Three days later, Hennepin County prosecutors charged him with eight felonies, including two counts of attempted murder of police officers. Stallings says he was glad to have survived the encounter with police, but figured he'd spend the prime of his life in prison. I felt like my life was over, right? I felt like... Regardless of the fact that I felt like I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't feel like I was in the wrong at all. From experience, what I've seen is that black men don't make it out of situations like that. Stallings rejected a plea deal in exchange for a 12-year sentence. At trial, he told jurors that he shot at the van in self-defense. His attorney played video that contradicted officers' claims that Stallings resisted arrest. The jury believed Stallings and acquitted him of all charges. He says the video was key to the jury's decision. The moment they gave me that not guilty verdict was the happiest moment of my life. Stallings reached a $1.5 million settlement plus attorney's fees. For its part, the city does not admit wrongdoing. In a statement, the city says it, quote, hopes that an early resolution to this matter will allow all of the parties to move forward. From his new home in Texas, Stallings says now that his criminal and civil cases are behind him, He's making the transition from being a commercial truck driver to full-time activism with the hope that his experience will help change the culture of law enforcement. Matt Sepik, NPR News, Minneapolis. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that, we, that is brought to our attention, We need to function from the position of an analysis 
that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it uh, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious. The answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. Now a federal grand jury indicting a man on hate crime charges in connection with shootings at two Clayton County gas stations. 11 Alive's Don White live in downtown Atlanta with a copy of the indictment. And we're just finding out about this indictment here, Don. Well, Sheba, I just spoke to the attorney about, I would say, an hour ago. And according to this indictment right here, the suspect allegedly tried to kill customers and workers inside of those two gas stations because of their race. The federal grand jury indicted 48-year-old Larry Foxworth today with federal hate crimes and firing a gun during a violent crime. Investigators say on July 30th, 2021, Foxworth, who is white, shot into the two stores along Terra Boulevard and Jonesboro because he didn't like the perceived race or color of the people inside. Clayton County Police say Foxworth told officers this is a hate crime and this is a targeted hit. Fortunately, no one was hurt. U.S. Attorney Ryan Buchanan hopes the indictment sends a strong message. No person should be afraid to shop or to work in our community, nor should people have to worry that they may be violently attacked because of the color of their skin. Combating hate crimes continues to be a top priority of the Department of Justice. And this is the first federal hate crimes indictment in eight years for both Metro Atlanta and North Georgia. Now, they're making it happen now. We got the spirit, a lot of spirit, yeah. We got the spirit, just watch it happen now. Thing flew off of me and I just kept running and running. Holding her husband's hand, Fragrance Harris Danfield recounted the moments after someone started shooting inside the top supermarket on Saturday. The customer service lead works in the store with her 20 year old daughter who became separated in the chaos. She crouched down, she sat hiding at register six the entire time. She didn't come out until the police came. She was in the store. What was that like when you finally were reunited with her? Oh my God, I didn't want to let her go. You see how hard I'm holding on to him? I held on to her. Sandfield's cell phone is still in the store, which remains a crime scene after 13 people were shot, including 11 black victims, targeted for the color of their skin, investigators say. A total of 10 people died.
We will stand together. We will hold each other. But this is unacceptable. Outside Tops on Jefferson Avenue this Sunday morning, a prayer vigil turned protest, demanding change. What's the problem? What's, what, is, what, what is the underlying root of hate? Is it fear? Is it the nonsense that they're spewing out? It's something. Authorities say the accused gunman, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, is not from Buffalo. He traveled more than 200 miles from Conklin, New York, planning the attack for months. Governor Kathy Hochul revealing the gunman purchased the AR-15 rifle legally, but attached an extended magazine, illegal in New York, but easy to find elsewhere. I don't know that he bought it from Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania is literally 10 minutes from his home, where the gun laws are very different. The attack live-streamed online, centered on a theory that white people are being replaced. That's according to a 180-page document found online, believed to be written by the alleged shooter months ago. So why was it not forwarded to police? Social media companies have to be able to monitor keywords that might pick up on something that can then notify us. This was cold, it was calculated, it was cruel, it was very intentional. This neighborhood was targeted because of the high black population, and that's what's so chilling. And so the governor has now ordered flags at half-staff at all state government buildings. The suspect is facing life in prison for these first-degree murder charges, but of course now there's also the strong possibility that there's going to be federal hate crime charges as well. Reporting live here in Buffalo, New York, I'm Derek Waller, Channel 7, Eyewitness News. Derek, thank you very much. Uh, tragically, Buffalo's retired fire commissioner, Garnell Whitfield, arrived on the scene to help, only to discover that his mother, Ruth, was among the victims. The 86-year-old was gunned down while shopping for groceries. She had just visited her husband in a nearby nursing home. So many words of praise today for one of the shooting victims, former Buffalo police officer Aaron Salter Jr. He worked security at the store and confronted the gunman. His law enforcement colleagues credit him with saving lives and preventing the tragedy from being even worse. 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, the suspected mass murderer, pleaded not guilty to a first-degree murder charge after Saturday's shooting. Authorities say Gendron was heavily armed. He wore a tactical gear and had a camera that live-streamed his actions. Eyewitness News reporter Lucy Yang joins us from the newsroom with that part of the story. Lucy. Well, Joe and Sandra, why? Why would a teenager about to set out on life allegedly set out to destroy a community. So many questions tonight about the suspect. This is what we know so far. Here is 18-year-old Peyton S. Gendron in court in a white hospital gown and white mask. A far cry from his outfit yesterday when he went to a local grocery store in Buffalo, New York. Police say he was decked out in a bulletproof vest, military-grade helmet, and armed with an assault rifle for the sole purpose, authorities believe, of killing African Americans. Officials were quick to label the shooting as racially motivated because the suspect reportedly posted a 180-page rant detailing the planning of the killings and attributing it to white supremacy. Gendron hails from Conklin, New York, which is in Broome County, upstate. He had one previous encounter with police when he threatened to shoot up his own graduation at Susquehanna Valley High School. Records show he was taken in for mental evaluation last year, but not arrested. 
Another note on his behavior, students are now telling ABC News that after the pandemic, when they were allowed to return to class, they were called Gendron, showing up at school in a hazmat suit and gas mask. Students laughed it off in the moment. Sadly, no one is laughing tonight. Just we shocked. Were, yeah, I mean. shocked. Like, my, one of my friends like just texted me about it, and like I saw it, and we were just in awe for like hours. Very like just shy. Um, never really had much friends. Um, quiet, smart. Those are classmates. They have known Peyton Gendron since kindergarten. Hard to reconcile how a quiet and supposedly smart student could allegedly carry out such a massacre. Local police say when he finally came out of the crime scene, his rifle was pointed at himself and not the police. Joe. And Lucy, the president spoke today about the mass shooting. He called on everyone to stand together in the face of hate. The Justice Department has stated publicly that is investigating the matter as a hate crime, racially motivated act of white supremacy and violent extremism. As they do, we must all work together to address the hate that remains a stain on the soul of America. The president says he's been getting updates from his team at the White House and that he did reach out to Governor Hochul and the mayor of Buffalo. Uh, this mass shooting putting even more eyes on a decision on gun rights by the Supreme Court, which could come down as early as tomorrow. The justices will make a ruling on the Second Amendment and what it means for carrying a weapon outside the home for self-defense. That the system was actually about on this particular planet because white people, people who classify themselves as white all over the planet, are fewer than one-tenth of the people on the planet. And they are genetically recessive compared to black people and other people of color, and they can experience genetic annihilation. So once I understood that we were dealing with a system and that the system was actually about people who classify themselves as white, their fear of genetic annihilation. Investigators are looking at a screed that was posted online in relation to Saturday's mass shooting in a predominantly black part of Buffalo, New York. The 180-page document cites a racist conspiracy theory known as the Great Replacement. This idea has circulated for at least a decade among far-right extremists. Now it's become mainstream through cable news. Republican talking points are also tweaking the language a bit. Here to discuss is NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef. Odette, can you explain what this is, Great Replacement? Yes, the Great Replacement uh, conspiracy theory baselessly claims that a cabal of powerful elites are systematically replacing white people in America with people of color. Uh, and while the term, you know, Great Replacement was coined around 2012, as you mentioned, this has actually been a conspiracy theory within the organized white supremacist movement for many decades. You know, they've long claimed that the elites are bringing in immigrants and also promoting interracial marriage to dilute the white population. Uh, and you even still hear claims of white genocide within these circles. Hasn't this always gone hand in hand with anti-Semitism? It has. The organized white supremacist movement at its core revolves around a conspiratorial belief that Jews control the media, they control Hollywood, they control the banking system, and that they wield outside influence in politics. 
uh, it was clear that this conspiracy theory was bleeding out of the KKK and neo-Nazi circles in 2017, a when you'll recall we saw footage of mostly young white men in polo shirts and khakis marching on the University of Virginia campus in Charlottesville chanting, you will not replace us or the Jews will not replace us. Yeah, we remember that. Uh, as we noted earlier, the replacement theory is uh, more mainstream. Can you explain how that happened? It is. A recent poll has found that one in three American adults now believes in replacement theory. Uh, I spoke with Matthew Gertz about this. He's with Media Matters, and he's been following this conspiracy for years. Um, he says initially it was only on fringe neo-Nazi websites. And then they found their champion. Uh, it was Tucker Carlson who started talking about the same conspiracy theories night after night. Other hosts at Fox News started doing it too, and then Republican politicians, and now here we are. It's a mainstream Republican talking point. Fox News declined to comment when I reached out to them about this, A, but um, it's worth noting that earlier in Carlson's time at Fox, the language was crafted more around political theory than race. Uh, he wasn't saying Jews were replacing white people. Instead, he was advancing a baseless theory of voter replacement, uh, a conspiracy claiming that Democrats are replacing so-called native-born Americans with immigrant voters. Um, and, but Gertz says you don't have to look too closely to read between the lines here. Carlson focuses more on immigrants from Central America, for example, than those from Scandinavia. Uh, but he says that framing it as a political conspiracy has made it much more palatable to a wider audience that might turn away from it if the racial subtext were more explicit. Well, in this uh, online document that may be linked to the gunman in Buffalo, was Tucker Carlson uh, or, or Fox News even cited anywhere as a source uh, for these beliefs? They weren't. The author of that document claimed he was radicalized on the Internet, primarily through the kind of fringe websites where the Great Replacement Theory first found currency among the alt-right. But what's disturbing is that the walls between the violent and racist worldviews you find in those spaces and other conspiracist worldviews that have become more popular recently, you know, those walls have become really fluid. And so normalizing conspiracies on cable news can get people onto a, a very dangerous path, eh? NPR's Odette Youssef, thank you very much. Thank you. And the black and white people were singing, we shall overcome, and holding hands, and uh, swaying back and forth. And I found myself feeling nauseated, if I really speak the truth, and um, disgusted. And I just thought that after... After Ferguson, you have black and white people marching together, and then you have another event. You see, and then you have the events in Baltimore, and you have black people and white people marching together, and everybody's saying how wonderful that people are getting together. Assemblyman Patrick B. Burke has fired three top staff members in a disagreement over whether he has taken a strong enough stand against white supremacy since the massacre Saturday that left 10 black people dead at the Topps Markets on Jefferson Avenue. Burke, an Orchard Park Democrat, said he fired them for gross insubordination following a heated exchange Tuesday afternoon in his West Seneca district office during which he said they accused him of being a political coward. The dismissals, Burke said, occurred after he had just driven back from Albany one day after he joined with members of the black Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian Legislative Caucus in the state capitol to speak out against white supremacy. Married to a woman of color, Burke, 
who represents the 142nd district, said he is the father of three racially mixed children and that over his 10 years in public service he has repeatedly spoken out against racism. One of the workers called my family Lily White, in spite of knowing that I have a mixed race family. I'm married to a woman who is Puerto Rican and we have three mixed race children, Burke said of a comment made by Matthew T.H. Deering, who had served as Burke's director of community relations. The other two staffers Burke said he fired were Nicole Golius, legislative director, and Brendan Keeney, communications director. Deering, who is black, said he did call Burke's family Lily White, but offered an explanation. I said that after I had spent two hours with my mother consoling my four black sisters who are afraid to go to school and afraid they are going to get shot, Deering said. Deering said the disagreement with their now former boss started on Monday during a phone call in which he and his two co-workers urged Burke to take a strong stand against white supremacy. He said he did not want to be a white savior, to which we responded we are not asking you to be a white savior. We're asking you to stand up on this issue in your community, Deering said. In defending his position against white supremacy, Burke cited his Twitter account on which he posted statements he has made starting on Saturday after a gunman shot and killed 10 black people at the Jefferson Avenue supermarket. Peyton Chandrone, 18, of Conklin, is charged in the killing. Burke tweeted, I'm sickened by the news of the racially motivated mass shooting in my city. If the information is accurate, the shooter live-streamed part of the shooting and scrolled on the barrel of the gun was the N-word. Heartbroken for the victims, their families, and all of Buffalo. On Tuesday, Burke posted a link to a YouTube video of his speech condemning what happened in Buffalo during the caucus gathering Monday. Accompanying the link, Burke included this statement. I stood with my colleagues to condemn the act of terrorism in Buffalo. White supremacy and nativism are purposefully being spread across our nation. More than thoughts and prayers, we need action. I'm submitting legislation to root out extremism. Deering said he was unaware of the speech, but still believes Burke has not been forceful enough in standing up to white supremacy. When we were counting the exchange of how he and his colleagues were fired, Deering said, if you want to fire the first black person you have ever hired because he asked you to speak out more clearly on white supremacy, the anti-black shooting in your city, you can, but I'm not going to quit, so you'll have to fire me. Burke said the claims made against him by the workers are not accurate. Burke called the workers clearly ignorant about my work over the last 10 years. It is an election year and they are trying to hurt me in my election, Burke said. Deering said the assemblyman did mention his upcoming bid for re-election. Burke denied saying he did not want to lose his assembly seat over the shooting. Buffalo, New York. I'm like, okay, I know it's cold. Um, you know, O.J. Simpson, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I get to go to the Knicks games and I get to go to see, you know, the Nets. I'm in New York, you know. And I got here, and I'm like... Staff and volunteers from World Central Kitchen were distributing meals to people in the Jefferson Utica neighborhood Wednesday. In a lot across the street over the next few Wednesdays is a planned Buffalo Community Peace Market, where food, products, and services will be provided. These are just some of the numerous partnerships and volunteer projects that have emerged to help the neighborhood address food needs, with their lone supermarket remaining closed indefinitely closed following last week's killings there. Not having tops opened exacerbates an already existing problem, a lack of easy access to healthy food choices in many of Buffalo's east side neighborhoods. We're stepping in and stepping up for our community, and we want to make sure that people can eat, and they have more than just food, though, because they need diapers, they need Infamil. You know, we have people who need pharmacies and medicine and stuff. Like, this was a big hit to the community because there's nothing else. Alexander Wright is general manager and co-founder of the African Heritage Food Co-op, which is seeking to fill some of the gaps. 
Other programs include Buffalo Go Green, an urban farm located two blocks from the tops on Jefferson. They are growing green beans, peas, collards, radishes, peppers, and tomatoes. Ricky Fleming manages the farm. It's so important just to have your food right there. Like we harvest everything in the, in the morning, and then it's it's shipped out to whoever it's going to. It's a uh, especially with that being the only supermarket around here. It's going to be tough to get fresh produce to this whole neighborhood now. Uh, so hopefully we can supplement some of that to the community. But it will take some time before many of their crops can go to neighbors. The radishes will be ready soon, but some other selections, including tomatoes, will need a full season before they're ready. Not having the supermarket available means residents lose a critical source for healthy food, but it also takes away what has been an important social center for many in the neighborhood. I have an 86-year-old aunt who regularly shops at the store, and she just, by the grace of God, wasn't there on Saturday. Andrea Waker was volunteering in the neighborhood earlier this week. Not only is that grocery shopping something that provides them sustenance for their body, that is a... uh, mental and it's a social outlet for them because they go to the grocery store they see people they can you know interact some of them live alone and they don't have that that uh, social interaction so now I'm, I'm fearing that they're isolated and afraid in their home just getting tops into the jefferson neighborhood was a struggle in itself mayor byron brown recalls some argued that income levels crime and other conditions would make it impossible while others felt corporations would not care about investing in that neighborhood Tops did open shop, and Brown thinks it has proven successful. This will open the eyes of other supermarket executives, other corporate leaders, that there is a tremendous market in this community, and this is a community where people are warm, loving, and caring, and they deserve services that every other community has. For many, a concern is for what happens when the broader community moves beyond this story, when the volunteer efforts lessen. Alexander Wright says his co-op and his partners will continue their efforts and address the systemic racism that created the food desert in the first place. In the meantime, in a time of trauma, Wright was asked one more question. Are you doing okay? He admits he's not. He's been so busy that he has not had time to grieve, but he offered this message. We're sad, we're hurt, we're nervous, but we're undeterred, and we're strong, and we're tenacious and we're going to be here. He did not win. My community is still here, still standing, and still strong, and we're still helping each other, and we're not hiding. So you wasted your time, man, and you took lives for nothing because we're not going to fold. We're here. Michael Mosiak, WBFO News. Younger people don't understand racism, white supremacy, just like older black people don't understand racism, white supremacy. See, I would say fewer than one-tenth of one percent of black people understand racism, white supremacy. Good evening. Thanks for joining us for WENY News at 11 o'clock. I'm Nick Quatrini. The city of Buffalo is still mourning the loss of 10 people who were murdered at a top supermarket on Saturday afternoon. Our very own Cody Taylor is in Buffalo tonight, and he spoke to a man there who claims that he spoke to the shooter the day before tragedy unfolded. Yeah, I'm here outside Tops, right by Jefferson Avenue, and you can see behind me this block was covered with tents earlier today. People handing out food and water, trying to help those that are grieving. But you see those tents are kind of wrapping up as the day winds down. And if I shift over here on this pole behind me, it's kind of far away, but you can see people are leaving things like balloons, candles, and flowers. 
to show their respects for the lives that were lost. Now, earlier today, I did speak with a community member who was here. He spoke to the shooter a day before the mass shooting happened. He said he was acting a little strange. He spoke with him for over an hour, but he said he didn't notice anything off, anything that could say that he was planning to do this mass shooting. Let's take a look at what he had to say. When it happened, I was across the street. I just left out of the um, supermarket. Um, I bought um, a juice and I, I cracked the juice and I heard a gunshot. Within that second, I looked up and I see smoke and I see a guy just shooting and camouflage, just shooting random. And, I, and I'm like, okay, this can't be real. The day before the shooting, Lewis actually talked with the shooter for over an hour. I gave my benefit card, my um, keys to have the, um, my um, bonus plus card. He went in and bought himself a, a, a Gatorade, gave me my things back. Everything was okay. We sat and talked, and I'm like, well, what are you going to do after this? Now, Peyton Gendron told Lewis he planned to go hiking after they were done talking. And before they stopped talking, he said... Are you going to be here tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'm going to be here at 5. He came at 2.30. But Lewis was at Tops on Saturday at 2.30 when Gendron arrived. Gunshots, 30, about 30 rounds, and I'm hearing the echo in the, in, in the store. And I'm screaming, because I've got a phone, and I'm screaming for people to call the uh, police, call the police, call the police. Lewis said it only took the police about a minute to arrive on scene, and that's when Gendron surrendered. Took his gun. Put it to his chin. Then he took the gun and it was on a holster and he put it down. He took one glove, took it off, took the other glove, took it off, did something with his boot. Then he took his, his gun, he dropped it, he took his vest off, and dropped it, he got on his knees, then he got on his stomach and he put his hands behind his back. Now the 18-year-old has pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder and if convicted could face life in prison without parole. Now, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden, they'll be coming here to Buffalo tomorrow. We'll provide you with live updates, but we're now sending it back to the studio. Reporting from Buffalo, Cody Taylor, WNY News. He was on a white supremacy mission. You see, so in my view, it's just a variation on the theme of, and, and the other thing is that when this uh, person was captured, he wasn't beat up by the police. Now, just imagine if that had been a black man going into a white church and shooting white people. He probably would be dead. But this young man was handled respectfully and protectively. Federal authorities are investigating the weekend massacre in Buffalo as a potential hate crime. Law enforcement officials also reported today that the accused gunman had planned to continue his shooting spree at another location if he had escaped. That news came as communities in Buffalo mourned the losses from an attack that claimed 10 lives. All were black. Special correspondent Kat Wise has our report. Today, as the community of Buffalo, New York, learned more about a gunman's racist shooting rampage at a supermarket over the weekend, the reality was setting in. Eddie Colbert has lived in the area for 50 years. He's suddenly fearful of his usual routines and visits to local stores. I was thinking about 
the fact that it could be me or anybody else going in or coming out of that store, you know. So this is something that's going to be scary for anybody now, you know, because we don't know if there's any other haters that's out there that's going to copy this, you know. Topps Market sees heavy foot traffic from residents nearby as one of the only grocery stores in the predominantly black neighborhood. Kishanti Atkinson was working as a cashier when the gunman entered. She hid in a conference room and is still reeling from the experience. During the incident, I was scared because I didn't know if I, I didn't know if he was going to find us and just shoot all of, shoot us. And I didn't know nothing. I just, but now, I mean, I'm still a little bit scared because this was supposed to be a safe, safe environment. The attack happened on Saturday here at the top supermarket on Buffalo's east side. The alleged gunman drove about 200 miles from his hometown to the parking lot behind me, armed with an assault rifle. Today, law enforcement officials remained at the scene, pouring over the evidence. The 18-year-old gunman live-streamed the shooting from a helmet camera to a small audience on the platform Twitch. He shot 13 people, killing 10 of them. Of his victims, 11 were black. The Buffalo Police Commissioner made clear he was targeting them. The evidence that we have uncovered so far makes no mistake that this is an absolute racist hate crime. Peyton Gendron, who ultimately surrendered to police after pointing a weapon to his neck, pleaded not guilty at his arraignment. Gramalia told CNN today the gunman had planned to continue his rampage, possibly at another supermarket. The Buffalo massacre is reminiscent of other racist attacks, including a 2015 mass shooting at a black church in Charleston and another in 2019 at a Walmart in a predominantly Hispanic area of El Paso, Texas. And it's left families like Ruth Whitfield's in agonizing grief. Whitfield, one of the victims, was shopping after visiting her husband in a nursing home. Going to Tops was a daily ritual for her. She was 86 years old. We have no answers. What do we tell our father? We don't even know. He doesn't know. What do we tell him? How do we tell him the level of his life, his primary caretaker? Another victim, Kat Massey, was an advocate for civil rights and education. She wrote to local news outlets last year calling for federal regulation of firearms. She was 72 years old. Reverend Denise Walden Glenn has been providing comfort to her community. She works for Voices Buffalo, an interfaith racial justice and equity organization. Our community is hurting. Our community is devastated. Um, as much as we try not to struggle with the spirit of fear, people are scared. People are scared. People are scared to leave their homes. People are scared to go into public spaces. Children are afraid to return to school. They're afraid for their parents to go to work or their caregivers to go to work. People are afraid. Officials say the gunman subscribed to a racist ideology known as the Great Replacement Theory that's made its way from the fringes of the Internet into mainstream discourse on the right. It's a belief in the false theory that there's a plot by non-white people to replace the power and influence of white people. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump blames the gunman and those who influenced him to commit the act. All these people who are talking about this race replacement theory radicalizing these young, impressionable minds to go out and do irrational acts because they know they have an irrational audience. 
Police were called to his high school last June after he made threatening remarks. But after a brief mental health evaluation, he was free to go. The impacts of that release are now reverberating throughout this city and the country. This is our mother. This is our lives. We need help. We're asking you to help us. Help us change this. This is this is can't keep happening. The president and first lady will make a trip to Buffalo tomorrow to meet with families and see the grieving community firsthand. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Kat Wise in Buffalo, New York. We certainly cannot any longer say that, well, you know, somehow things are improving. And so to me, this is the time when there needs to be absolute insistence that black people not talk about anything else instead of talking about, isn't it wonderful that the black and white people were holding hands and singing, we shall overcome. And I think that black people should be saying out of respect for themselves because we've had 500 years of this. 500 years. And it's time that we begin to say, no, we need to function with an analysis of why we are doing this over and over again and insist that racism, white supremacy as a total system structure be put on top of the table. The 18-year-old white man accused of a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, appeared in court today. It was a short hearing. Prosecutors were given more time to to put together their case against the alleged gunman who killed 10 black people at a supermarket. And Pierre Cheryl Corley was in the courtroom and joins us now. Cheryl, describe the scene there today. Well, first the uh, prosecuting attorneys came out. There were three of them. And then the defense team, also three attorneys, and the suspect. And he came into court wearing an orange jumpsuit and shackles. In the audience, there were family members of the victims, um, and as you mentioned, it was a, a short hearing. Uh, the prosecutors asked for and received more time. The next court date is in June. As the suspect was being led out of the courtroom, there was an outburst in the court. Uh, a woman in the audience shouted, hey, you're a coward. And after that, uh, everybody was urged to leave the courtroom. Did any attorneys speak after the hearing? Well, no. The uh, the prosecution didn't speak, and neither did the, the defense. Uh, the DA's office did send out a news release saying that the next court date would be for June 9th. Although no one spoke publicly, we did hear from the DA, John Flynn, earlier in the week, who said that this is not an open and shut case. Emotions are high. I understand the rawness of this matter. However, I do not operate in the court of public opinion. I operate in a court of law. And this defendant is innocent until proven guilty. And Flynn said more charges may come, however, after a grand jury does convene and investigates the shooting. And there's also a parallel federal investigation. This massacre was live streamed for about two minutes on a social media channel before it was taken down. The suspect also apparently posted documents with racist language promoting white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Are those going to factor into the trial? You know, it really depends on whether those things are admitted in court. The, the battle over evidence always plays out in trials, and 
and what evidence is allowed is sure to be an argument between the defense and prosecutors if the plea remains the same and as this case moves forward. So I want to talk about New York Governor Kathy Hochul. Uh, Along with the state's attorney general, she has decided to go after social media companies, right? Tell us what she wants to do. Well, Governor Hochul says the uh, nation's biggest threat is really the mainstreaming of hate speech and white supremacy and easy access to military-style weapons and ammunition. Uh, She sent a referral letter requesting Attorney General Letitia James to investigate social media platforms like Twitch and 4chan and others that were apparently used to amplify the the attack here. And Hochul says uh, she also signed an executive order that sets up a domestic terrorism unit. They'll develop the best practices for law enforcement, for mental health professionals, for school officials to address the rise in homegrown extremism. And we'll make sure that they're trained to know how it occurs, where it occurs, and how to stop it. The governor also announced uh, tighter gun controls, at least plans for them. Yes, um, very. Yeah, she uh, asked state lawmakers to close gun law loopholes that allow uh, specialty guns to be sold without permits, and lots of other things in a very comprehensive package. Okay, we'll look for more on that. NPR Cheryl Corley in Buffalo. Thank you. You're welcome. You see, but the very fact that we go from event to event. And I'm certain that because this young man not only killed black people, but, I mean, it's just disgusting that there were six black women and three black men who were killed. And an 87-year-old black woman was killed. And I said, when are we as black people going to have the level of self-respect and courage to really come out of the slave role, slave obey your master, turn the other cheek. May sir, you turn the other cheek and you'll get your reward in heaven. And that's a slave role. We haven't maybe thought about it in those terms. But, for example, people never... And, you know, there will be black people coming forward and saying they forgive. I am the eldest daughter of Ruth Whitfield. She was my best friend. What am I to do? What am I supposed to do now? I keep seeing her face coming up everywhere I look. But I can't kiss her. I can't hug her. We were supposed to go see the Temptations play that night. Oh, and I have the ticket still on my table. <laughs> How dare you! I am trying. To forgive. But I'm finding it very difficult. Very difficult. Because I'll never see her again. I took my last picture of my mom on Mother's Day. She was so beautiful. But that picture can't replace her. (laughs) Nothing can. And I have my 
family here. But they can't replace her either. I need this violence to stop. We need to fix this, and we need to fix it now. Fix it now. Thank you. You've heard much about our story and our mother. But the thing that strikes me that that 86-year-old woman who had her first baby at 18 and her last at 25, she spent every day of, those, of that life trying to protect us from the very violence that she fell to. That is unthinkable. But you know what? We are going to rally together, and she has taught us to rally together, okay? We, and, and I just want to say this, we were first out here, but our heart has been breaking all this time for all of these families, yes. and we want you to know we love you, yes. and we're with you, yes. okay? Thank you. We need you to be with us, yes. okay? And, and I said this last night, but I'm going to say it again. You know, when you're down on a knee, you have a problem with us getting down on one knee. But it's a little hard. It takes us a little longer to stand up and say, my country, tis of thee. When you're down on one knee, wiping away the blood off of our streets and the floors of our grocery store. Have compassion. Let's do something to solve this problem. We're not coming here with hate. We're coming here, with, of course, with anger and with pain. And we're saying it's time to do what we have to do. And one of the things that we can do is to get legislation, Amen. okay? Right. Legislation Amen. that says if you do things like this, uh -huh. okay, it's called black hate crime. Yeah, okay? anti-black hate crime bill. There you go. I say no more. I'll, let, I'll pass on. Angel, you like what you're I don't know what I could add to this. Uh, you've heard the families, you've seen the tears, they're real. This is all very real. You guys are here with your cameras and you're here with your microphones. You're chasing us around, sticking microphones in our face, asking us what we want you to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to know, can you give us back our loved ones? Can you give us our loved ones back? Because that's a crazy question. We don't know what to do. We're asking for your help. I want to personally thank, and there's been a lot of banter about what we're doing and why we're doing. My family is a very private family. This was difficult for us. This is difficult to share our pain publicly. It's difficult. We're doing this because we don't know what else to do. Nobody came to help us. Nobody asked for our, uh, came and wrapped their arms around us, but these guys did. Reverend Shopton, I want to thank you. Yes, sir, yes, sir. Brother Coom, I want to thank you. These, they've been there from the beginning. And that's the only resource that we have available to us to try to channel this anger and this pain into something that will memorialize our loved ones in a matter befitting them. Amen. So we ask for their help. 
We're asking for your help. You guys have the power of the pen. You got all of these cameras. Go stick them in the face of this guy's parents. Thank you. Go stick Thank them in the you. face of the people who won't pass laws to protect us and treat us like human beings. Go ask them what they're going to do. Tell them, Garnett. We need your help. That's your job. Amen. We're doing our job. We're law-abiding citizens. We're not asking for any favors. We want help. We just want to live in peace. My grandchildren are here. Her great-grandchildren, my children. I'm scared for them. I'm scared for them. I have to hold their reins because it's not safe out here. We're not animals. We're human beings. And the world ought to know that. And it's about time America treats us like human beings. So why can't we get this done? Amen. We've heard talk about gun laws and all these other things. They're all real issues. But this is white supremacy. That's right. This is terrorism. Let's call it what it is. And all of these things come up under that. Let's call it what it is. It's hate. It's hate. It doesn't belong here. I'm not going to talk about my mother. I'm tired of crying. I can talk all day about my mother. I know everybody's got somewhere to go. I can talk all day about my mother. I'm so thankful that we got a chance to meet these other families and hear their stories. Because they're our brothers and our sisters. We are a community. We're family. We need your help. We are the village. Yeah. We are the village. I have a dream. That one day in America, all of people will see. Black people, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and live in peace. White hatred is real in America. Too long have I listened to red, red and blue lies coming out of white mouths. This is America. We have uh, the last daughter of Miss Whitfield, who's going to try her best to say something, and then we're going to get to your questions. Let justice ring. Okay. Angela, can you try? Can you try? I'm some hope. I do want to say that I am so proud of this city. I got a call a week ago that nobody, nobody ever received. When I got to town, I felt so lost. I felt so empty and hopeless. Since I've been here, it's been such an outpouring of love for us. People have been so beautiful. I thank you for it. And we're not going to let this hate rule the day. Amen. I thank all of these people here for what they are trying to do. And you. Father God will make a way for you. Yes, 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 thank you. Yes, yes. We're here with you, Angela.
draw term salary. And what's wrong with Buffalo? <laughs> Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, May 21, 2022. So I have been told. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to provide constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Uh, before we get to anything, uh, let's make sure we give proper recognition uh, all of the victims uh, in the white supremacist attack from last week. Roberta Drury, Hayward Patterson, Ruth Whitfield, 86. Aaron Salter Sr., 30 years enforcement officer. Celestine Cheney. Pearl Young. Andre McNeil. Geraldine Talley. Margus Morrison. Catherine Massey, the victims of white supremacy who perished last week in the terrorist attack, uh, could have been more. If he had had his way, it would have been more. Uh, let's see. And also make sure to acknowledge the grandsister, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. Uh, she was a guest on the program 31 times. One of those visits when she was with us back in 2015, the day after Dylan Storm Roof's terrorist attack. Man, super important. Uh, if you participated live, if you heard it, you can go back and listen to it again. And wow, it is amazing. Um, Dylan Storm Roof murdered nine uh, Peyton Jenrin, 10. Uh, the, I think the eldest of the nine victims was 87 in Charleston, 86 here in Buffalo. Lots of similar young armed white race soldier on a mission, talking to the victims, chatting it up in advance, doing recon, lots of similarities. I mean, it was eerie uh, at times, but I mean, wow, the, I hope appreciated the presence of the grandsister, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. And with all that about the so-called replacement theory, I am certain she would be saying, Hmm, ISIS papers. <laughs> and, and that's another one. Hmm. Pseudoscientific BS. Really? Really? All righty. Wendy had to be prepped for wind out at the beach. But anyway, um, pseudoscientific BS, really, Timothy Wise, really. Thought of Dr. Welsing so many times this week for so many reasons. Uh, but this is our compensatory 
call in uh, feel free to dial in with your thoughts observations views on what has taken place uh, over the past week a week dominated by discussion of white supremacy racism that is one thing that I will say like wow I think more so than any time that I can think of I would even say more so than Dylan Storm Roof I don't remember hearing as many people saying white supremacy like that has been interesting even the president because President Obama we talked about that with Dr. Welsing he wasn't saying white supremacy with Dylan Storm Roof uh, suspected race soldier Joe Biden he said white supremacy a few times. Governor Kathy Hochul also suspected racist up in New York. She said white supremacy that and equally hearing many black people say that they are afraid of white people. Dr. Welsing talked about that. Now, I mean, that's certainly nothing to cheer about, but at least in my opinion, that is much more in alignment with truth. That which is being able to say that not all that false bravado and all the rest of it. Uh, I'll give a few short thoughts and then we'll see what folks have to say, what you talked about with your family. If people have offspring, I would absolutely love to hear how have you explained the past seven days to your children, especially because I think we have some folks who do live in the New York area. How have you talked about this with your offspring, especially if they're, you know, under 15 Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. Decode five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, get to my few thoughts and then we'll get to the phone lines. Number one, the Cows Book Club. We've been here for eleven years. I said ten before. It's been stressful. I lost a year somewhere in there, but we've been here for 11 years on the book club. I don't even remember with OJ Simpson or Minister Malcolm. Like we've read a lot of texts over the years. I can't think of one. (laughs) The hate you give new American classic. I cannot think of one where I've said, Oh, this is like mandatory. Listen, mandatory read. If you're not into audio books, get the book, read it immediately. This is not one of those excuses and I don't like the narrator and I don't like the style. This is not on Netflix. This is important, especially if, you know, this situation in Buffalo, you think is significant. Mandatory. The Cows Book Club. Absolute Madness. Catherine Pellinero. Also, before I even, why is this mandatory? I was posting reports about what this book is about and the significance of all that this week. And I was like, why, why, how are you finding all of these older reports? Uh, And I told them I go to the university library. I think I bragged about doing that for many years and university of Washington specifically and digging through their archives. They have lots of resources. White people are not ignorant. Uh, They, you know, collect lots and lots of information, mostly about the system of racism worldwide. Uh, And within all that, I reminded them and myself, Gus does have a history degree, which is probably why I knew about this bit of information and all the other folks that we've talked to have not. And it's not that I think the major media outlets are ignorant. Them not mentioning this is deliberate white supremacy racism. It's not 
irresponsible journalism. It's not laziness. This is deliberately keeping people confused. Dr. Welsing, grandsister, she would use the metaphor connecting the dots, meaning I don't see all of these events in isolation. I see how they are related to each other. This connects to this. And what are those connections? Was this event inspired by what happened previously or whatever the case may be? So absolute madness. Why is this required? You're a cow's listener. Oh, yeah. This is one time you got to listen to and or participate in the book club. This is almost page one of the book. We just started it on Thursday. Basically, page, uh, I won't give the page, but very first chapter of the book. The entrance to the Topps grocery store was less than 50 feet from where the Buick Century sedan was parked. Lieutenant William Mistall and Patrolman Warren Lewis pulled into the parking lot in car L-12E at 9.50 p.m. no more than two or three minutes after hearing the call from dispatch. Lieutenant Mistall and Officer Lewis were assigned to Precinct 12. The shooting had occurred within the boundaries of the neighboring 16th Precinct, but Mistall and Lewis had responded because of both the serious nature of the call and the location in particular. This tops market regularly employed off-duty police officers as security guards. Mistall's first thought was that this must be an officer-involved shooting. Either a police officer had shot someone or been shot himself. Again, this is like the very first page practice, or I think it would actually be page two of the book. Tops has already been meant. This is about the fourth and fifth time that Tops is mentioned in the book. Why is that? Because in Buffalo, 42 years ago, a white supremacist, a 20s, young 20s white supremacist, went to East Buffalo, New York, to a Tops grocery store, specifically to kill black people. He started with Glenn Dunn, a 14-year-old black male sitting in a vehicle, smoking cigarettes, incidentally, but uh, and killed him at the Topps grocery store. Now, that not being mentioned, we had a white serial killer who was specifically targeting black people, dark males specifically, but black males and was killing them in the Buffalo area, convicted. And that hasn't been mentioned at all. The way this should be talked about is, again, white supremacist attack at an East Buffalo Tops grocery store, again. Within the first two chapters, we even wondered, dang, did Peyton Gendron, did he read and or research? I mean, you do all this recon. You live in New York. Man, did he know about this? Was this part of the plan? He had all these serial killers written down. He had studied. That's what he said. He had nigger written on the gun. He had all these other 
white supremacist race soldier names on his gun was Joseph G. Christopher's name on the gun and or did he know hey this happened here 42 years ago I'm going to do the same thing mandatory especially since people and I'm just pointing that out because if people didn't know this was a huge event extraordinary event at the time because the buffalo slaughters from the 1980s that was in the middle of the so-called Atlanta child murders all of that happening at the same time by that point they were having like press conferences and major attention uh, focused on oh my god these children are dying and turning missing all the time blah, blah, blah. Uh, all of, I mean hey racism was being talked about flagrantly at this point but the fact that you have so many folks who were alive at that time they don't remember this don't have any detail of it even the so-called Atlanta child murders that's you know a pretty popular uh, event they have podcasts and many 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 movies about it probably more coming and they still have news reports uh, talking about it all over the country probably all over the world that's how I know about the Buffalo event it's mentioned in uh, Chet Detlinger guest on the program mentioned in his book briefly but that's how I know about it the Atlanta child murders if you talk about that event accurately it should include what was happening in Buffalo because all this happening together many black people were saying that they were afraid especially for their children during this time period to have that sort of event that was so traumatic and widely covered there's so much material on both of these it was in the New York Times both of these events sometimes in the same paper you would have on page A2 Buffalo slaughters of black males and then on A5 Atlanta children still missing what's to be done same paper same day the fact that that can be forgotten in rather short time we are not experts on racism white supremacy Dr. Welsing's metaphor we do not connect the dots painfully obvious but the book club mandatory why is this not and then anytime someone wants to talk about this that's question number one why isn't this talked about in context of Joseph Christopher this has happened before same group well, not the exact same store but three miles away you could have walked from where Joseph G. Christopher murdered Glenn Dunn 14 year old black male you could have walked from there to the scene of the carnage from last weekend reading is more important than watching television Let's see. Briefly, we'll nab our callers. Uh, the segment, Deborah Weaver, she was talking about her so-called biracial daughter where they were threatening to kill her. I just thought that was another one uh, with the use of conflation. Deborah Weaver looked to me to be classified as white. She said that her daughter was experiencing all of this terrorism where even the white children, they would come outside and yell, white lives 
matter. And all the rest of it, kill yourself, nigger, and all this. She said they come and they tease her because she's black, biracial, gay. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. I heard nigger this and nigger that and kill yourself. White lives matter. I didn't hear anything. Now, I mean, if you got that information, please share. But I didn't hear anything about, you know, sexual orientation and, you know, rainbows not welcome and, you know, names or any of that. I didn't hear any of that. All I, negra this, kill yourself, negra. White lives matter. I mean, did they say straight lives matter? Hetero pride. Did they say that? If they did, you know, I would have loved to have heard that. They didn't share. Let's see. In Georgia, having the exact same thing happen. Uh, I don't know if a lot of folks uh, saw, heard about that. Hopefully people down in Georgia at least. But uh, white man, uh, Fox, uh, make sure I get his name correctly. Uh, put it in the... I put it in the description. Fox, I think it's Butterworth. That's it. Fox, I thought it was it's something kind of strange, his last name. Fox Butterworth. That's it. Yeah, Larry Edward Foxworth. I still messed it up. Larry Edward Foxworth. But down in Georgia, he did the exact same thing. Went to store Jonesboro, Georgia. Went to stores shooting at dark people. They just arrested him this week for hate crimes. That was where they said uh, people aren't going to be afraid to go shopping go to work white genetic annihilation uh, connect as, as Dr. Welsing said connecting the dots in terms of why these things are happening and even what she said about white genetic annihilation why you might be seeing an increase in these types of events directly targeting black people uh, let's see next uh, the segment Assemblyman Burke in Buffalo this is the white man. He fired three of his non-white staff members. They said that he was a coward with regards to addressing white supremacy racism. That was the one where he said, what, what do you mean? You see my multiracial family and my, my biracial children saying I'm a coward. Look, 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 did you see? Did you look at my Twitter. I blew up the Twitterverse. Do you see what I said? Look at that. I, just, I got, I got 15,000 retweets just since we've been talking what do you mean I'm a coward that is and and he fired them I could have played that for uh, neutralizing workplace racism that's another one why I say hey do not discuss racism on the job now that's a little different because that you know maybe that's their part of or were part of their duties to discuss all that but hmm uh they also they spoke with Grady Lewis, Mr. Grady Lewis. He was the victim of white supremacy. Uh, he said that he had like an hour long, might have even been two hour long conversation with a suspected race soldier, Peyton Gendron, the day before. Uh, if I heard him correctly, he said that he gave him his card I guess like the discard cards uh, discount cards that they have for grocery stores uh, he gave him his card with his keys on it so he'd go in and get a discount came back talked to him boom 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 what are you going to do oh I'm going hiking oh, okay you going to be here tomorrow yeah I'm going to be here tomorrow I'm getting here five oh, all that. he had on I've seen a few interviews with Mr. Lewis 
uh, the first time I saw him, he had on a T-shirt that said Black King. And it was, I guess, for people who are in the States, if you've seen like food labels where it has the nutritional information. So it had Black King and then it had like that label nutritional information. It was like 100 percent. I don't know, Black Pride, whatever. <laughs> I, I can't laugh because, I mean, this is serious, but I mean, I don't even know what to say about in, and particularly in this week, in this context. And you were just hanging out and chatting with this guy, gave him your keys the day before. And he said he seemed a little strange, but he didn't, you know, if that's our black royalty. And it was, it was, it was so much. It was so much. They say a picture is a thousand words. What he said is important. Hugely. We do not understand what it means to be white at all. I would even be interested in asking Mr. Lewis, do you know who Joseph G. Christopher is? Is that name familiar to you? How long have you lived in this area? Are you a Buffalo? How long have you, have you lived here? Okay. Just curious. But anyway, uh, the visual Mr. Lewis, to me at least, he looks like he'd probably be over 60. Uh, He looked like he'd be what they medically would classify someone as being morbid obese, meaning if you are more than 40 pounds above what your healthy body weight should be. In fact, he just visually, he looked like lots of comorbidities, COVID-19, exactly what they've talked about. And you live in a so-called food desert where you have tough times now it's even tougher getting fresh produce mm. and he had nutritional facts like oh my I mean it just diabetes that's what I was thinking like oh if this is our black royalty Mr. Fuller says worthy of great pity victim of white supremacy, Mr. Grady Lewis and Gus T. Renegade, worthless Negro in Virginia, from Virginia, excuse me, trying to solve this problem. Um, the last one uh, that I'll get in, I've heard multiple reports where they've described Jenrin as smart. They said it repeatedly, sometimes within the same report. He was smart, he was quiet, smart. I thought he didn't he drop out of community college <laughs> like man I mean anybody it just seems like white smart I mean that's almost what they tell us right bright that's in I think in the word guide bright Mr. Fuller recommends not saying that but man you can go out and be classified as white and kill up a whole church full of negras whole grocery store full of negras and it, he was intelligent what he did is is, is horrible Absolutely repugnant. You know, we denounce and repudiate he and Louis Farrakhan. But, uh, you know, he was pretty intelligent from what I remember. I don't even remember white people saying that President Obama was intelligent. He graduated from Harvard, I thought. Or Michelle Obama. They said he was a monkey. I'm done. 720-716-7300. The code five six four. Nine four three pound press star six one. If you would like to participate, uh, no metaphors. And it's I've heard many people say that Gus hates metaphors or doesn't like like I got some sort of personal vendetta. None of that is correct. 
metaphors are great tools for individuals to deceive. They are not specific. They are not precise. They're not even exact to whatever is being discussed currently. We need specific detail with regards to solving the problem, the system of white supremacy racism. And those metaphors frequently, almost usually are transmitting ideas of white supremacy racism, consciously, subconsciously. Many times we don't really think about these metaphors and what we're saying or what's being said to us. And so that white supremacy, bright, you're so bright. Peyton Gendron, he was such a bright student. Our darkest day, it was a dark stain in the history of Buffalo. All that is white supremacy racism. Be specific. Say what you mean. A white man came to Buffalo again to slaughter black people at a grocery store. Got it. That's not a dark stain and no, that's not bright. If we could make an effort to be exact precise with what we are saying that would be super appreciated words are important five minutes to share your thoughts just make sure everyone gets an opportunity to share uh let's see folks who dialed in uh with a hand up have commentary to share line should be open proceed greetings everyone Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, first, I'll start off with the uh, with the milder part. Uh, DCF program. Uh, the activities for today was uh, primarily. Uh, uh, I uh, did spend some time talking about what took place last Saturday in and around, I believe, 2.30 Eastern Standard Time the in Buffalo uh, with the uh, young fellas. But uh, the rest of the day after lunchtime was uh, to go and watch the high school have a uh what they call a football scrimmage it made some people may not know what that is they actually uh kind of like practicing against themselves this last part of spring practice which is not really that important i'm just mentioning about where where we were at uh but i did meet uh with a lot of uh college level uh coaches football coaches, all black males, uh, that uh, I either coached when they were in high school or they were in high school when I was coaching. Uh, and the only the only one that I did not have a personal relationship with was Mr. Charles Strong, who was uh, is known in history as the first black male to be the head football coach of the University of Texas. Uh, he was there also 
the other people were Randy Shannon. Yes, Kyle Bell. Randy Shannon, who was the first black Bell uh, head football coach of the University of Miami. You can read in the Kyle Bell on that also, Gus. Uh, and uh, the assistant head football coach at Jackson State University under the great Deion Sanders. Uh, his, uh, I coached him in, when he was in high school. Uh, and we basically we were having conversations. Uh, and primarily it was over the issue of the lack of black males who are in those places as coaches because most a lot of us know that most of the players on these teams, especially the best players, are black males also, uh, and they can have a lot more constructive uh, relationship with, uh, with those guys. And uh, I was just listening to what they had to say from the standpoint because they are the professionals on that on that level, and uh, interesting conversations uh, that uh, I was having with them. Uh, with the uh, I, I uh, just about there's only about four or five more pages of the uh, manifesto that I haven't read yet. I took it to the uh, the program today and basically spent an hour talking to the young fellows about about the uh, the incident. Also, I included on how this was actually wasn't the first time that it took place. I mentioned the the additional new information to me and a lot of others of what took place. 41, 41, about 41 years ago uh, in Buffalo and other places also in New York, the, the white individual that uh, uh, murdered a lot of uh, non-white black people purposely for that, for that reason to kill uh, and uh, had about an hour, hour or so conversation before we did pack up and go out to the stadium and watch the, uh, the team play. Uh, interesting on, they were like, they were like, kind of like shocked is what I gather from their faces uh, of this report. Uh, most of them, most of them were, you know, from that standpoint. And, uh, and uh, that's basically how things went, uh, you know, today. Uh, which kind of like I would say uh, I have been, you know, talking with other people about the incident all through the week. Uh, some were a lot more uh, less confused than what uh, others are, you know, so there was, you know, constructive conversations all the way through. And I would like to keep encouraging you to white people only <laughs> as far as coming on the program. Uh, keep encouraged that that take place because like you said uh if there's going to be some uh an exchange of understanding ideas that are not basically the same or agreeable i would rather have that type of conversation with a white person than a 
non-white person, especially a non-white person that's rich, classified as black. And that's it. Thank you. Wild. I've heard that from so many different uh, listeners uh, late. Like I had been saying that for a while, like explicitly white guests only, white guests only. And then slowly uh, after about eight months or so, and sometimes people would even like reluctantly, they'd be saying, yeah, now I see white guests only, Gus. (laughs) And even this week, that's like the second or third time uh, that I've heard it. I think some people, it was from recent programs uh white guests uh that we had on the program in the last 30 days or so i guess there have been some you know constructive exchanges um uh, and or as you were saying like hey if there's going to be a dispute of some sort hey it should be between the victims and the perpetrators of white supremacy racism like two victims sitting around and, and squabbling about all this that is you know not not solving anything not getting us anywhere Long live Al Sharpton. Uh, <laughs> the number yeah. is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Other folks... Uh, nab them uh, as they get their hands up and what again if we have uh, attempted parents man let us know how have you you know talked to all this talk to your children about all of this what have they said to you have they like asked questions I know retired firefighters said that they seem kind of shocked which I guess I would I, I'm not a so called child and I was shocked um, you know reading and hearing about it so I can't even imagine being you know thir- 13 12 14 and what <laughs> like uh yeah. so if you if any parents let us know even just the, if if we have folks who are maybe having difficulties about how to explain all this or apprehensive uh hearing what some other folks uh, have done or are trying out let us know that would be grand folks are, I guess, getting there. Before, some, before someone else uh, speaks, I, I would I would just state for about 20 seconds that uh, a friend of my my uh, offspring, uh, about 23 years old, he's a correctional officer, uh, just maybe about an hour and a half ago, uh, I, I asked him, did you know what took place last Saturday? He, he said, what happened? <laughs> he didn't even, he acted like he didn't even know. And I think he was honest. He he didn't even know what happened last Saturday, you know, as far as that concern. And uh, so, but it ended up being it ended up being a constructive conversation, because he was not only willing to uh, have a understanding of what a knowledge of what took place last Saturday and an understanding on based on how I explained it. So it's, that's cool. If if you if someone is ignorant about something, that's not that's not a uh, a, uh, a, a terrible situation. Uh, but if you know the bottom line is, if you're willing to learn and 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 have an understanding of it, then that's a different situation. 
and he was he was open to listen to my explanations of it. Thank you. That is awesome. That is awesome. Dr. Welsing, she said that today. She said, black people, what were, I was listening to the archive uh, of her visit after Dylan Storm Roof's terrorist attack in 2015 today. And she said, uh, black people say that about a hundred times a day. had to clear my throat excuse me black people say that about a hundred times a day what's happening what's happening what's happening and Mm -hmm. what happened Mm -hmm. like uh and even for an event like that but i mean hey if you are and that is again why mr fuller has it on the front page of uh, both books if you don't understand white supremacy racism everything else will confuse you and that right there speaks to why so few people uh, were informed about, hey, this has happened before. Uh, if you're confused about racism, you have a lot of folks. I didn't pay attention to the news. That was something that, um, that's why I say when I hear victims, a spouse, hey, I don't, I don't check the news. They just lie all the time. I don't read the news or I don't watch the news. I don't listen to the news, you know, because they just lie. They just lie, lie, lie. You know, I, I don't do all that. Okay, I've said for years, if you are just evaluating, it can be very difficult to distinguish that person who has that view from a person who, you know, I'm just lazy and poorly informed and, you know, don't care to be informed. It can be really difficult to distinguish the two. And taking that sort of approach, you could miss an event like this if you, you know, are just not paying attention and all the rest, because I've heard that from a lot of victims of racism, uh, where they'll be proud about not checking the news. That's uh, and that's how you end up not being informed about. Oh, this happened before, because they have lots and lots of newspaper articles, magazine reports, books uh, about what did happen before in Buffalo. But if you don't read the news, then you will miss all that too. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. How's it going, Gus? Right poorly. All right. Well, Gus, I have to give you credit because you've been uh, really the only source of news that I've heard speaking about the prior racial attacks that occurred in Buffalo. And so, uh, I, I give you full credit, man. You you are the guy at that. Um, one of the things that I, a couple of things I want to touch on. First and foremost, people talked about, you know, him having the N-word on his rifle, and they kind of spoke about the number 14 on there. And what I'd like uh, to, um, I guess I say, bestow upon those who are black classified is you'll hear about the 14 words, and if you look into it, the 14 words came from David Lane of uh, The Order out there, if I'm correct, in uh, Seattle area, or at least the uh, Washington State area. Him and uh, Robert J. Matthews and a couple of those other guys that started The Order, they ended up murdering a, uh, if I'm correct, a Jewish uh, European fellow who was a uh, DJ or something like that. 
Well, if you you hear about the 14 words, but there's a second stanza to the 14 words that doesn't get talked about. So I think the 14 words, the first part that you hear about is about securing a future for white children. But there's a response to it. It's like a call and response in a way. And it goes like, but why? And it's, it, it focuses around uh, the preservation of white women. Now you had, it was a couple, it was a, I think it was a book club, not, not a book club, but you had interviewed a lady who was speaking about uh, the lady who did the uh, book where she was giving praise about the Anthony Broadwater. And one of the questions I wanted to ask her was around how much she thought uh, white people um, pushed the anti-black male aspect because of that second stanza, if I can use that term, I, I guess that might be appropriate term, of the 14 words. So when you hear people talk about the 14 words, there's actually two sections. The first part is like a call. The second part is a, a, like a response. And when you say, but why, you give an answer to it. That's the second part of the 14 words. So it's actually roughly a t total of 28 words. So just if you get a chance, you can look it up online, and you can verify what I'm saying is either correct or incorrect. And if I'm incorrect, then tell me, but I'm, I like to believe I do enough research to know what I'm talking about. But uh, they don't talk about that part of the 14 words, about the protection of white women. That's what the actual part is. They talk about the children's side, but it's a whole other side to it. Um, I'd also say that uh, from my understanding of it, the security guard who was a retired lieutenant, they said that he aimed to have protected the people in the store. I was informed that he did discharge his firearm, but unbeknownst to him, the guy had body armor on. I don't know the level of body armor he had on, but I'm, I'm not going to say I'm an expert at body armor, but roughly enlisted different classes of body armor. If you got a handgun, you're pretty much very few, you know, there might be some body armor you could penetrate, but if you hit it directly, you're pretty much, it's a no-go. With the exception of like maybe 30-odd six black tips or uh, 5.56 green tips, those are known, but 30-odd six black tips tend to be penetrating rounds. But I applaud him for not uh, sitting there, you know, people like to talk about black male cowardice. He exhibited... I think the utmost uh, respect in terms of trying to protect those who, you know, he saw as his duty. So may he rest in peace. Um, the other part that I wanted to touch on was the aspect of when they talk about in his manifesto. Now I haven't been able to read it. I've uh, consulted with sources that I know like to read. And one of the things they spoke about was his view of those who are classified as Jewish, which in my opinion, uh, from from my understanding of it, you have Ethiopian Jews who are classified as black, and then you have European Jews who are classified as white. But nonetheless, uh, a lot of that replacement theory stuff is things that I've observed in old writings. So it's nothing, in my opinion, as new. There's a book that I read from an online source that is in that sphere that that fellow probably would have been hanging around in. But I believe the book is called... Um, the Riddle to Jewish Business Success. It was written way back in like the 1400s, roughly, and what it covers is how the so-called Jewish folks were able to uh, become prosperous in business throughout old-time Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I have to look it up. Once I look it up, uh, I might try to at you, Gus, with it, 
on Twitter possibly, but it covers quite a bit of that whole replacement theory ideal. So this is nothing new, just, just to make it simple, that the whole ideal replacement is nothing new. I think they just have transformed it, as they always do, made slight changes, but that's just my opinion on that. But the book details uh, that Europeans or white people, if you want to call them that, have always had this internal battle amongst one another about being replaced by each other. Now they just have other people to throw into it. So that's my uh, take on it, and uh, I'll mute my line. Much obliged, uh, our caller in Ohio. Uh, Before we nab our other callers, I just wanted to get in. David Lane, white supremacist, racist, of the order he was in Aurora Colorado not Washington so don't be besmirching uh, my beloved Washington State however uh, the order they do have it I guess written as one of their like explicit goals Um, let me see the order was accused of stealing over 4.1 million dollars in armored car hijackings killing three people detonating bombs, counterfeiting money, organizing militaristic training camps, and carrying out numerous other crimes with the ultimate goal of overthrowing the Zionist occupational government they deemed in control of the United States and to liberate the Pacific Northwest as a homeland for whites. I did just say, like, literally days ago, uh, local national global history specifically learn local history I said hey Gus T I'm still learning I'm not an expert on Washington state history and I said really this whole area the Pacific Northwest like oh my god like ground zero for metaphor this is a location that has a long history of white terrorists exactly what they said white homeland long history so but yes they were in Colorado not Washington state specifically folks that we have missed completely if you have commentary proceed hey just uh victim from new jersey am i am i coming in clear yes sir yeah so um man i, I just want to say um again uh you know thanks again uh you you definitely brought information that was not put out there and uh Joseph G. Christopher. Um, also, I mean, even we're bringing in information about uh, the writer of Shaft. And so now that I'm talking to people, people, and I'm in New Jersey, people have no remembrance of Joseph G. Christopher. None. I did and that piece of information is so important. And what, so, and another thing that I'm coming across when we talk about the Buffalo uh, terror attack, we have black people that find some way to blame black people, meaning just basically, you know, now it's, uh, we need to take up arms. Oh, we need to you know we need to have gun training. And I'm like, okay, there was a black male 
retired police officer, firearm, fired shot, but the terrorist had on body armor. Even if he didn't have on body armor, black grandmas are not military generals. Black grandmas are not Navy SEALs, Navy SEAL personnel. These are people that are going to shop. You know what I'm saying? Like military, you know, basically um, at times is caught off guard with an ambush. Even though they have firearms and they can return fire. If you're ambushed, you're caught off guard. So I'm staying away from conversations like this, especially when it's conversations like this have had on Twitter where you're basically, you know, saying to the Twitter space and the Internet, you know, that we should put up firearms. Micah Johnson, Dallas, we had the Baton Rouge shoot. None of those retaliation, retaliatory actions was done by black people moved, and this is a metaphor, didn't move the needle one inch for what we're dealing with, with racism, white supremacy. And when we was having this conversation, I was talking to somebody, and we were talking about uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street. I said, you, you are aware that black people were armed and they put up a resistance. They put up a resistance. They, they ran out of bullets. So I come to the conclusion that armed resistance is not going to solve this issue. If you feel like you want to be prepared and have a firearm, do you, listen, VGQ, if that's what you want to do. But what I'm not going to do is encourage black people to take up arms as if black people are a nation like Ukraine. You're not going to get $40 billion in military spending from a foreign government. So these are some of the conversations that I'm seeing, and I know it's reactionary, but unfortunately, dealing with racism, white supremacy, we are, I mean, you know what I mean? It forces us to kind of like react instead of being proactive, where a lot of people are not proactive when it comes to racism, white supremacy. But, again, I just want to close with this, Gus, that information about that serial killer. And I don't even want to call this guy a serial killer. He was just basically a white terrorist. I mean, the fact that we don't know about this and that the news media is not making that correlation or even introducing that to the conversation is real interesting, real interesting. And also, there are people up there where they, they're asking black people about forgiveness in some of these news um, interviews where they're talking to the victims. Very tacky, but it's to be expected. I'll close. To be expected. Mm. I, um, I was going to say, I talked to Dr. Wells in the day. It did feel like that. I listened to Dr. Welsing and she said, <clears throat> we are going to have to be logical. We have to be thinkers, be logical, use our brain computer metaphor. We can't just get emotional when these things happen. 
getting upset and getting angry. That's racists know how to handle emotional black people, emotional non-white people, period. That's easy. No problem. I've heard all of that rhetoric in my view. That just, in my view, shows how confused these people are. Again, if you watch the news, did you just see, what is it, not effing around? Did you just see we all watched that? Or maybe you all don't read the news. Maybe you didn't see that. They did their little march and yeah, 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 we're going to do this and that. And then all we these charges and I guess that was the end of that. And we have not made we're not any closer to solving the problem at all. There have been lots of black people who have talked about that. Again, you will be going to Peyton Gendron's relatives to get your ammunition unless black people, the Boule or the African Liberation Army. Remember Dr. Layla Africa was talking about them. I still haven't found them. If the African Liberation Army exists somewhere and they are producing firearms, bullets, bow and arrows even, you will be going to Peyton Gendron to get your arms. So all of that pitiful, primitive, worthy of tremendous pity because you are clearly confused and excellent. That's the best thing to do. Minimize contact. Retired firefighters say, hey, this person is confused, but they're receptive. What information? What happened last week? What's happening? Tell me, brother. And they proceeded constructively. A plus. We need to do. And he said, blaming black. Now, how in the world? You had armed black people there. He did what he was supposed to do. I get you get an F for not as he a coon, Aaron Salter, because he didn't have tactical gear. <laughs> at the grocery store, I mean, he's not working at the bank. As he said, I don't know what we mean for the the grandmothers and what have you. 86-year-old Ruth Whitfield, I mean, so she's lame. She should have had a firearm. Black service, you were supposed to have, yeah. VGQ, that's what you think. Again, all of us, even if we were going to do that, we have to go to Dylan Roof and his relatives to get our firearms and train us how to use them. And... (laughs) Keeping it all the way. What do the young people say? Keep it a hundred. Being totally truthful. Hey, it's 2022. You sound like an idiot to Gus T. And that's just keeping it real. I will take a 16-year-old white boy with a drone against any thousand black people who sound like that. It's 2022, and it's a global system of white supremacy racism. Folks that we've missed total and and the other part that I forgot, he said on social media, I hope we did not forget uh, Micah Johnson, Texas, because in that same context was black identity extremist. Two things that I did see this week after all the carnage was in New York. Lawmakers were discussing bringing back the death penalty. Two lawmakers were discussing a domestic terrorism unit. Now, I said that's interesting because they didn't call it a counter racism unit, counter terrorism unit for white supremacy or anything like that, just domestic terrorism. I said, oh my gosh, like I already know if you bring the death penalty back, it's not going to be retroactive. So, this isn't for 
Peyton Gendron, who are you bringing the death penalty back for? Who are you making a domestic terrorism unit for? Black identity extremists? Black people talking wild on Twitter like that? And to have all this happen with black faces attached to it, because they'll say, what are you talking about? We got a black mayor of New York City. I think the mayor of Buffalo is black. And the the attorney general of New York is a black female. So what are you talking about, racism? Hmm. And they'll be able to probably attach the names of the Buffalo victims to all of this. Just like with the anti-lynching bill. And I didn't even hear that this week. They didn't even give that as a suggestion. Hey, let's try out the new Emmett Till lynching bill. This has got to be slam dunk. How about that metaphor? This has got to be an easy one. I didn't hear that at all. Hate crimes. That's all I heard. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share. Wait a minute. Yikes, that is, it confused me. All right, got it together. Uh, Folks that we missed totally, uh, proceed. What? May I be heard? Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, Greetings, guests, greetings, callers, Mm -hmm. and listeners. Um, just just a little bit of commentary for in regards to the shooting and still doing a lot of processing on it um, with my son. He's actually 15, and, um, you know, he discussed it with his friends. And one of the things his friends, he said, brought up was the fact that it it's almost like the shooter was taking it like it was some kind of, like, video game, the way it was recorded, because uh, they were, it's very hard to minimize some of the things that they see, so they were able to see it, um, and he's, uh, you know, he's distraught over it, he's not really sure how to, not really sure how to process it currently, and I think that, you know, that's absolutely normal, considering the circumstance. One of the other things I, I do think um, that was made a uh, and the last caller gave you a lot of respect in regards to that. And I have to admit, I haven't heard anybody make the correlation for those murders that were going on from that white terrorist. Nobody, nobody here in the tri-state area has even brought this up. Um, the only person I remember bringing this up was on a podcast was Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. That was about it. Um, and I believe he's in California. So um, that being said, I'll mute my line. That's all I need to um, to put in. Thank you. Mm. When did you hear him uh, mention it? He's been a guest on the program. Uh, He he mentioned it on, I believe, Sunday. After the shooting, I think it was on a Sunday, I believe, he had a conversation about it with um, a few other a few other scholars, I, I believe, and somebody in the chat mentioned it and then shot him the article and then he put the article in the chat, you know, the news report. So that's, that's how we heard about it and that's how we all heard about it, literally all at the same time. Mm, I see. Even then, that does not seem, oh, yeah, we already knew about that. We talking about <laughs> that sort of thing. 
that keep that in mind. I want for since this will be, as I've said, an incident we will remember, talk about for the rest of our life, hopefully, at least until racism, white supremacy has been vanquished. Um, <clears throat> there was not widespread knowledge about this. Keep that in mind when people say in the future that black people are experts on racism. Really? Hmm. Other folks that we missed totally. If you have com- and much obliged for how you've been dealing with all this with your son. Um, wow. Wow. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, so I. We can hear you. Then we didn't hear you. I, I heard you say, uh, could you be heard? All right. Can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I'm kind of dealing with a loud environment. I'm trying to let it move fast a little bit. What's wrong with you? Um, so I heard a little bit of the commentary, and I guess it was surrounding the shooting that took place in um, Buffalo, New York. And so what I gathered from what I was listening was that maybe it was a person that was classified as black uh talking about retaliation on twitter and um i was just listening to the commentary and i had a question um that i wanted to just throw out there for the audience because in my observation i was born in 1981 okay and so in my observation um in response to the problem that people that are classified as black, um, no response to the problem so far has worked. And so my question is, if armed resistance won't work and a nonviolent approach won't work, what will work? And like, and I'm really asking that question, and I'm really looking for an answer because, as I observe, the people that are classified as white, um, in my estimation, the only thing that they understand is violence, right? And I understand that um, people that are classified as black are not qualified um, and or in a position to respond in a violent manner. Um, So I'm just wondering, like, what's going to work? And, you know, it's really, um, I had a conversation with my brother today. My brother lives in Philadelphia. He's six years younger than me. And I've been labeled as the crazy person because I've been talking about, um, quote, unquote, the things like the things that's happening with black people in the media. I've been talking about this since Trayvon Martin was killed. And I've been getting called crazy by my family, friends, and everything like that. So when I have the conversation with my brother today, he was like, man, bro, they called you crazy years ago. But now... I see exactly what you're talking about. 
And so my response is, my my question, I just want to just reiterate it. Like, okay, so if armed resistance won't work and the nonviolent approach won't work, what will work? Because everyone um, is classified as black. Everyone is searching for answers. And uh, thank you for taking my card on me and my line. Absolutely. Rob in Southern California. Um, I guess two, number one, you said everyone is searching for answers. That is not true. White people are definitely not searching for answers. I assume you weren't even talking about them. So just non-white people. That is not true. I can only conclude, especially since this problem has been going on for so this is like at least the second generation of people classified as black who've had to live through a deliberate white terrorist attack in Buffalo, New York and other areas, at least a second. We don't even remember the first one names. Nothing. What? You know, I don't know what you're talking about. Buffalo bills. OJ Simpson. So no, I, I can only conclude that many may, if not most non-white people, we might talk about racism for a few minutes, a few days acutely, but we are not looking for a permanent solution to this problem. I can only come to that conclusion. Uh, if we have a cosmic assignment to solve this problem, the vast majority of non-white people on the planet are not on that job. Evidence of that is what you I mean, it abounds. Nobody knows who Joseph G. Christopher is, but what you just shared. Violence won't work. Nonviolence won't work because your own attempted family think you are crazy. How are we going to pick up arms? Your relatives think you're crazy. We can't even do a nonviolent way because they think you're crazy. So at present, nothing is going to work. Page one of Neely Fuller Jr. If you don't understand white supremacy, racism, this problem will not be solved. Dr. Wells, <laughs> that's what I was doing. To, man, I got my hammock. I sat out at the beach in my hammock and I did the audio. I listened to Dr. Welsing when she was with us the day after Dylan Stormroof's attack. And I listened to what she said because it was exactly same situation. She said less than one tenth. Wait a minute before I even say it. You said your family said you were crazy. Didn't I just say pseudoscientific bullshit? Many, 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 many black people said that Dr. Welsing was crazy and she has third generation physician. You're not a doctor. So join the club. That being said, uh, she said today. uh, Less than one tenth of one percent of the non-white people on the planet understand racism, white supremacy. If that is true, and I believe it is. Violent solutions will not work. Nonviolent solutions will not work until that has been changed. We could talk about a whole lot of other options once we have a much higher number of people who have an accurate understanding. What is racism, white supremacy? What does it mean to be white? Not trying to be a black king and a black queen and love black people and my black. 
what does it mean when you see a strange white person in a black area what goes through your mind what are you thinking I'm gonna sit and talk to this strange white fella for two hours give him my keys that's what black kings do that's what the cows is about trying to change that because I've concluded not that's why it's white guests only as was said before I am not given the circumstances gonna sit here and argue with non-white people who I have concluded are confused and sit here and argue with them about anything get the experts on if it's gonna be an argument it's an argument with the folks who are practicing racism but that's my conclusion Neither will work because non-white people all over the world are confused. And because we're confused, we are not, certainly not everyone, but most of us, we are not on our assignment at all. Not even close. Folks that we miss totally, uh, if you have commentary. And again, if you've been talking to your children about this, I think that would be important to share. Thank you for that clarity, guys. Thank you. Trying to be logical, sir. Trying to be logical. I think that was a uh, caller in Florida, I think, or maybe another folks too, but I did hear a caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, just a few things I wanted to mention. The first was, I think that was the the black teenager, I believe, or the middle school student. I think uh, you said the, I think that's how I heard it, the the, uh, older white kid or white teenager tried to get him to flinch or intimidate him. Uh, And I think he hit him and called him nigger. Uh, And I think he said he was shocked or something like that. And I thought about that uh, audio as well as the the uh, the non-white girl that had the apparently I think had the white parent. And like you mentioned, Gus, about the uh, conflation and throwing in that she's gay or lesbian or something, but the attacks were based on her not being white. Uh, so that right there is also like. Uh, an act of white supremacy being practiced and how I heard a a metaphor about the president where it was something about we need to something about get white supremacy out of our body politic or something like that. It may be inaccurate, but it's something like that. It just didn't make any sense. And, you know, I thought about how, you mentioned about how uh, the metaphors can cause confusion. And a lot of these things are a lot of, I guess I can say a lot of how white supremacy is practiced with words and language when it's outside of uh, violence and uh, physical interactions and things like that. And I'm thinking about how Mr. Fuller used violence, I think, on your program, Gus, uh, how forms of violence and things like that and language can be used that way. I just think that 
learning and understanding like that quote, if you don't understand, um, that's one of the main things you could really invest your time in trying to do is um, learning about the system of white supremacy and how words are used, words and symbols and images and the uh, the different areas or the nine areas of people activity, Dr. Wellsing and the many other guests on this program and other programs. And it just takes a while, I think, like, cause I know I didn't have that understanding like many other people at first, but it took time to really even get to the point to where I'm at now. And I'm still learning just like that, that quote still learning. And I just wanted to share one last thing where there was a, a local news report where this young black male child, they did a report on him racing a law enforcement officer. And he was just saying, yeah, you know, I, I beat him in a race and this and that. And just like it's, you'll begin to just notice how racism, I think, is even being practiced in that. Like a, a black child running with law enforcement and they're trying to say that he's fast. I just got the the racism being practiced in that. Um, and the name they used for this black child was Shady Flash. Shady Flash. Shade. Okay. And I guess flash for the speed or whatever. But I just thought racism was highly present in that. Um, and that's all I have to share. Thank you for allowing me to speak. What kind of name is that? Shady? <laughs> we got a cell waiting for you. Anybody with a name like that's what you are known as. Shady Flash. You got to have a mugshot and a criminal record of that. You will never be called smart. Speedy, athletic, suspicious, but not smart. Peyton Jenner, smart, quiet. <laughs> what? What in the <sighs> confusion? They, and I mean, just that sort of thing right there. If you don't understand white supremacy, racism, you might see that or you might even be that person. And Shady, what's the big deal? Slim Shady? People say shady all the time. Shade tree. What's what's the big deal? What are you talking about? Make racism out of everything. Lots of confusion out there. Deliberate confusion. Uh, any folks that we missed totally that had a hand up? Anybody that we missed totally? Hello. Our caller in Georgia. That was where uh, the fella who did before Peyton Gendron, he was down in Jonesboro shooting up the... Uh, the facilities. Larry Edward Foxworth. Yes. How far are you from Jonesboro, Georgia? I don't know. I don't oh, know where that is. Right on. Still learning. <laughs> I don't know. I think I read it at Clayton County. Clayton County, I believe, is north of was well, I know it's north of where I live because I I'm on vacation. I travel through there to get to where I'm going on I am on vacation. Um one thing I I wouldn't say a lot of things, but this is I'm sure I'm going to wrap this say. I know you say it's important for you to teach your children about racism, which I totally agree with. I'm not in disagreement with that at all. But you should also have conversations with people that you know are going to be involved in your children's life, kind of get to know where they stand. And like, I mean, if it's just your parent, 
teachers, whatever, I just recall, you know, teaching Sunday school and, you know, not to necessarily talk about racism in Sunday school per se, probably should, but, you know, people just drop their kid off, hey, good to see you, have a good week. I mean, you don't really know that much about me, and not that I'm a bad person, I didn't do anything to kids or anything like that, but I'm just saying, you know, you should you need to do personal vetting for people that you know are going to be in your child's life and, and these important topics. Like I said, going to church, I was teaching the kids at church, whatever, and, you know, I think it was maybe four or five years later, then they, I guess something happened, and they had to fingerprint me to make sure I was okay, which, of course, I did because I'm okay. <laughs> um, I don't have any problems with that kind of stuff. Um, I'm one of those few people, enough few people, thinking that helping children is a high honor and you should be very serious about it and diligent and make sure things in your life are situated in such a way that when they look to you, not that you're perfect, but, you know, you have some basic things. You have a good relationship with your parents. You're trying your best to make a difference, whatever, blah, 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 stuff like that. Um, So, yeah, just if you're – I don't have children, but I know that if – at this point, I would, if I had children, I'd probably have to adopt them. But I would have to talk to my mother, my father. Look, this is my child. This is what I believe. This is what was going. This how this was going to go on. And if you're not down with this, we love you for real. But I don't know if I'm gonna have you around my child because there are things that they need to know and not know and be prepared for. And if you can't assist with that, I don't know how you we're gonna relate in that manner. That's all. Thank you. Indeed, much obliged. Have a safe, constructive uh, vacation uh, as well. Uh, I think that's a great suggestion uh, for parents. Um, Definitely talking to folks that are going to be around your children, other so-called relatives and all the rest of it, just to kind of let them know your views and what you're going to be talking to your child about, what you think is important. So they're not, you know, coming in and trying to insist uh, when we got to have transgender coloring books and, you know, all the rest of this. Like, wait a minute. Like, let's get all that discussed in advance uh, in terms of what we think is important, what I want my child to be exposed to. Absolutely. Um, hopefully folks are talking about these events uh, with your offspring and checking in with them. It's already been super stressful for many, many reasons. Uh, racism, white supremacy at the forefront, but man, with everything over the past two years or so, the school year is winding down. So that could be stressful for a lot of reasons too, for some children, um, make sure that you are talking with them, being really observant, trying to do some nurturing things and, uh, just letting them know you're available, uh, to check in, uh, and talk about whatever, if it's racism, if they're feeling some type of way, or, uh, if they just want to get out It's summertime, like get out, go to the beach. I know there's supposed to be a heat wave in some parts of uh, the U.S. Not here, but some places, at least they've said that. So I guess be hydrated, be safe if you're in those uh, areas, but try to get outside, get away from the television. Definitely get away from the computers and phones and all that nonsense. Like you heard a lot of that with even the children before it got to Peyton Gendron about Discord and all the, the evil racist 
things that we can post here and pictures of Negras and all the rest of it. Uh, just getting them away from that and even talking to them about that as well, because uh, that's something I'm sure a lot of parents didn't have to deal with all of that uh, when they were children. Different world now with all of the technology. Anywho, uh, we will be here. After, now, the book club, as I said, mandatory. Make sure that we are very informed about Joseph G. Christopher. Thursday, absolute madness. But we do have a white guest before Thursday, and he's not even in the U.S. So this will be like irregular timed uh, broadcast uh, like this Tuesday afternoon. I have to double check with the time. The Buffalo situation kind of, had, I won't say distraction, but that has taken more of my attention. But we do have a white guest before we get to the book club on Thursday. Just check uh, social media. White people are allowing me back on Twitter and Facebook and the rest for the time being. So I will post all of the information uh, we'll be looking forward and hearing he's across the pond. So hearing what have they been reporting about this incident internationally and how this informs his work as well. But that'll be later in the week before we get to the book club. Uh, much obliged for everyone uh, tuning in. Hope it has been worthy of your time and energy, especially given everything that is happening right now. Like we do not have time. When I say we individuals classified as black victims of racism, we do not have time to waste. Listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, uh, hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Uh, you'll see the PayPal button at the top right corner beneath the PayPal. You'll see uh, links for PayPal, Venmo, Cash App. Uh, the Cash App address is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Uh, you'll also see the link for uh, my Amazon wish list. Uh, much of I got my hammock. It was an unpleasant. W- I mean, Wow. <laughs> Everybody can say that for about the last two and a half years, man, especially with everything that happened this past week. But being able to sit out at the beach in a hammock, slightly pleasant, I guess as pleasant as you can hope for, given the situation on the plantation. Hopefully we can get this problem solved as soon as possible. Uh, If you're out and about, do as best you can to be safe, uh, be alert about what's happening around you, who is around you, what are they up to, if for any reason you feel, hey, something is not right. This person seems a little out of place. Something seems odd about them. They're not familiar. I don't know what it is take that seriously and I would share that people that you care about if they get that sort of sense do not minimize it be alert don't be out with your loud headphones on or what have you or noise canceling headphones so that you're kind of lost and not aware about what's happening around you be alert be aware be you know paying attention as best you can and if anything looks this could be leading towards something hostile, non-constructive. Psh, I am out of here. If you're in a vehicle, you are sober, buckled up, and not on a cell phone. Again, we need all of our attention, and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, 
creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway black children that is an enormous one right there hey we're serious getting this problem solved on our assignment no throwaway black children cow signing up thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim Shut i'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned yeah.